Support for WAMU comes from the NYU Stern Executive MBA program in D.C. It's an NYU business education right here in D.C. stern.nyu.edu slash EMBA dash D.C. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and there's all kinds of intrigue on tap tonight. People trying to get away with the perfect crime on suspense and the whistler. People, yes, people from outer space on the Hall of Fantasy. Plots and counterplots on Gunsmoke and Dragnet. A Strange Ride with James Stewart on The Six Shooter, and, as an antidote, an absolutely superb comedy performance by three masters, George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Jack Benny. So you need to settle in, settle back, forget, for the moment, the cares and worries of last week, and the potential challenges of the week to come. Relax, and let your imagination guide you here on your Sunday Night Oasis the big broadcast. Sometimes, our crack insurance investigator embarks on an adventure that has very little to do with insurance. That's the case in tonight's episode, The Lone Wolf Matter. It comes from May 28, 1961, CBS, and the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. This is Harvey Wakeman. Well, hi. You know, it's State Unity Life down here in New York. Sure, I know. How are you, Harvey? Great, Johnny. Just great. But listen now, I got me a problem. Well, you're not alone in that. Or rather, one of my clients has. Ever hear of a man named Thomas Rayburn Morgan? No, I don't recall Oh, I guess but... you'd have no reason to. He's a broker, Johnny. A stockbroker. Has his own little office over in New York, NJ. Well, what seems to be? Well, I'll tell you what. He called me up on the phone a couple of minutes ago and told me that he needs you, Johnny Dollar, right away. You and nobody else. Did he tell you what his problem no, was? No, he didn't say what's bothering him. Not the slightest. Hint, but he did make it plain there's no time to wait. Well, unless I have some idea... So I promised I'd call you right away, so I've called you, so his office address is 13827 North Commerce Street over there in Newark. Harv. So grab your hat and get on down to see him, okay? Now, Harv. Meantime, I'll give him a call and tell him to stop worrying you're on your way. Now, listen, will you? And if you're a good boy, Johnny... Harvey, will you shut up long enough for me to get in a word edgewise? What? What's that? Well, sure. <laughs> Go ahead, Johnny. Don't get sore. I said... It's just that he's a very important client, so anything we can... I I said that unless I have some idea just what this man Morgan wants me for... Johnny, Johnny, boy, didn't you hear me? I haven't got the least idea what's troubling Mr. Morgan. Maybe I better phone him myself. No, 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 no. There is no point in calling him. He'll only say to come and see him, and he'll tell you what it's all about himself. Well, then I'm sorry, Harb, but these blind assignments for the birds. You tell him I'm not interested unless I can find out exactly... And I'll tell you this, too, Johnny. Considering the size of all the policies we've written for him... No, Harb. I mean, considering the way that guy is loaded, considering that when I call him back and tell him you're on the way... No, now listen. But that a guy like you comes high and that you have to be sure of a nice big extra fee. Fee? And Johnny, when you see how generous he can be when he wants to. <laughs> well, well, Johnny boy? You said 
fee. I said fee. And doesn't the sound of money, and I mean a lot of it, doesn't it kind of make these silly questions of yours, um, unnecessary? Well, Johnny? <laughs> What's your guess? Okay. 13827 North Commerce Street, Newark, New Jersey. Thomas Rayburn Morgan. Right. I'm on my way. The CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the State Unity Life Insurance Company, New York City office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Lone Wolf Matter. Expense account item one. Well, as long as Mr. Morgan is supposed to be such a generous soul, call it $30 even for the plane to Newark and a cab to the brokerage office on North Commerce. Mr. Morgan turned out to be a friendly, distinguished, prosperous-looking man of about 50. But he also looked more than just a little worried. Uh, sit down, Mr. Dollar. Sit down, please. All right, Mr. Morgan. Thanks. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm the one to say thanks. I mean to you for coming here. Strictly speaking, this is not an insurance matter. But to tell you the truth, you're the only one I know of who might be able to help me in this situation. Now, why is that, sir? Well, I, I, I mean, help me with a proper regard for its confidential aspects. You see, I, I haven't dared to contact the police about this matter, not even the authorities down there in Philadelphia. Now, why Philadelphia? Well, that's where the letter came from. Now, what letter is that, Mr. Long? You see, if the facts were to become public knowledge, well, it could mean only one thing. Complete and utter ruin. Not only for me, I, I don't care about that, but for my family, my wife and two splendid young sons. I suppose you tell me what it's all about, sir. But I must be sure, absolutely sure, that I can depend on you to, to keep this completely confidential. Believe me, I'll pay you well for it, very well. Just go ahead, sir. All right. Here, read it for yourself. Okay. Dear Thomas, or should I say Danny Fairland, Danny Fairland. That was a name that I, I used when I was younger, and I... Uh, but, but read on, please. All right. You may be surprised to hear from me after all this time. That doesn't mean I haven't kept, kept myself... kept myself well informed about you. Ever since that day some years ago, when our little investment scheme took a sizable sum of money from a handful of gullible suckers. You've done well, Thomas. I'm sure your share of the money is what started you so nicely in your present business. Is that true, Mr. Morgan? Just, just read on, please. All right. However, I was somewhat, somewhat less fortunate. And especially recently, things have gone very badly for me. But I am certain you will be only too glad to help me out. Let us say for the sake of our old friendship. And because so far I have never revealed the details of our illicit enterprise to the authorities or anyone else. After all, I fully realize that such a revelation, just what such a revelation might do to you, my friend, 
to your business, and of course, your nice family. Now, in view of your being in a position to help me, what I suggest you do is this. Make a couple of withdrawals from your bank account in cash until you have, say, your uh, $10,000 on hand. For a man of your means, this shouldn't be too difficult, nor take very long. I'll contact you as to where and when you may deliver this money to me. It's out and out blackmail. Oh, read on, sir. One other thing, being a man, man of, of conscience, conscience and having... Loving him and always afraid that sometime I might die without opportunity to get a crime off my conscience. I have carefully written it out in all detail, including, of course, your part in it. I have given this to a friend in a sealed envelope. Needless to say, should anything happen to me, any uh, trouble of any kind, this friend would immediately turn it over to the newspapers. Do you see? Thomas, I shall call you shortly. There at your office. Rather than needlessly bother your fine My family. family your, your old friend, H.B.W. That's very neat, Mr. Morgan. Neat, Mr. Dollar. And just who is H.B.W.? His name is Henry B. Wolfe. And this crime he talks about? A most reprehensible stock swindle. But I was young and inexperienced when he proposed it to me. It... It simply looked to me like an easy way to accumulate money enough to start this business. And I thought without hurting anyone. But it was wrong, and we took thousands from innocent people. Then aren't your skirts just as dirty as his, Mr. Morgan? Well, no, not, not quite, Mr. Dollar. Well, I mean, except for this blackmail bit. No, no. Because at the time, I kept a list of all the people we'd defrauded. And then later, anonymously, I paid them all back with considerable interest. Why anonymously? Oh, good heavens, man, don't you see? If what I'd done would have become known, don't you see what it would do to this stock brokerage business of mine? It would ruin me. Far more important, though, it would needlessly hurt my wife, my family. It kind of looks as though he has you over a barrel, doesn't it? This man, Wolf, has nothing to lose, and you have plenty, and he knows it. What can I do, Mr. Dollar? What can you do? You know something, Mr. Morgan? Yes. That's a good question. Morgan convinced me that he was telling the truth. That his ex-pal, Henry Wolfe, had engineered the stock swindle some 25 years before that he himself had made complete restitution, and then some, for his part in the affair. But how to locate this Henry B. Wolfe? The only helpful information on that letter was a Philadelphia postmark, and Philadelphia is a pretty big town. But he said that he would telephone me, Mr. Dollar. Yeah, I know, and tell you where and when to hand over the 10000 Now, have you done that? Done what he told you to? Drawn the amount from the bank? Well, what else could I do? If I set the police on his trail, if he's arrested and jailed, his friend will release the sealed envelope to the press and I'll be ruined. And if I myself try to, to stop him in any way, I, I mean, when I deliver the money to him, the same thing will happen. Stop him? You mean by putting a bullet through him, something like that? Believe me, if it weren't for my family, Mr. Doc. Oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. I just couldn't do a thing like that. But what can I do? Just pay him off is what it looks like, doesn't it? Ten thousand dollars? That's right. And when he runs out, another ten thousand, then another, and another. 
He'll have the same hold on you in a year, in ten years that he has right now. Then you must do something to stop him now. And you must do it now. Okay. How's about letting your secretary go out and pick me up a handful of magazines? Magazines, Mr. Dollar? What for? Well, Wolf said that he'd call you here at the office, didn't he? Yes, he did. So right here is where I'm staying. But, Mr. Dollar, I... Any better ideas? Until we find out where and when and how he wants that money? I see. And when we do? That depends. Now, how about her getting me a stack of reading matter? In the three days that followed, I plowed through four mystery magazines, three paperback novels, a lot of back copies of the Wall Street Journal, and all the daily newspapers available, including the funny papers. When Morgan went out to lunch, I went to lunch. When he went home at night to his beautiful place in Upper Montclair, I went along with him. He introduced me to his wife as an old college chum spending a few days in town. But I think Mrs. Morgan kind of wondered why more of our small talk wasn't about the old school tie. She was a lovely woman. I could well understand why Morgan would never want to hurt her. She showed me pictures of the boys. They were good-looking kids, too. Both going to Princeton, both doing very well. But then, the afternoon of the third day, there in the office, came the phone call that we'd been waiting for. At a sign from Mr. Morgan, I carefully picked up the extension phone. Hello? Hello. I'm still on, Henry. Oh, I, uh, heard a clicking noise while you hung up. And, uh, yeah, listen, Thomas. There's no way you can trace this call. I'm using a dial phone. I'm sure you're prepared for anything, Henry. Exactly. In other words, Thomas, you have no choice but to, uh, shall we say... Lend me the money that I need. I know. I know. I'm glad you do. You see, any attempt to call in the police or do me bodily harm can only result in the full story of our... (laughs) of uh, your transgressions being released to the newspapers. Yes, yes, you've made that very clear. But now listen. Well? If I do give you this money... You know very well, Thomas, that you can't afford not to. But what guarantee can I have that you won't be back for more? <laughs> None, Thomas. None whatsoever. Well, you dirty conniving... Now, don't worry, my friend. As long as you make no trouble, I won't be too hard on you. All right. Where do you want it? When? Thomas, I telephoned your wife a few minutes ago. You what? Yes. Henry! I told her I'm an old friend from out of town. Which is quite true, of course. And you told her... Oh, now, don't be ridiculous, Thomas. I merely told her I'm only here overnight. That I'd like to have dinner with you here in town. Oh. That's all. And you see, that will give you the opportunity to meet me this evening, give the money to me, and uh, nobody will suspect a thing. All right. Where and when? Listen carefully, Thomas. I don't want there to be any chance of a slip-up. Now, here is exactly what I want you to do. Well, now we know. Yeah, Mr. Morgan, 
So I'll be leaving you now. Leaving me? But you heard what he's told me to do to meet him tonight with the money. And if I were you, that's just exactly what I would do. But good heavens, Mr. Dollar. Your pal Wolf is a real clever fellow. And it looks from here as though any interference in this plan of his from anybody can only end up in disaster for you. Well, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, of course it does. But you... Well, I thought that somehow you could help me. Just take my advice and be there in Monroe Park tonight and hand over that money to him. So long, Mr. Morgan. No! No, please! Please, Mr. Dollar! See you sometime. Expense account item two, a dime for a telephone call. And then item three, 1170 for some early cocktails and dinner at the tavern with an old friend of mine. Judge Amos Ordway, retired. The judge had been around for a long time and has a good memory. Yes, Johnny, I recall that investment swindle very well. I was a lawyer then, and some of the people seeking their money back from those two swindlers were clients of mine. Uh, you mean from Henry Wolfe and Mr. Thomas? Mm, Thomas. Oh, no, no, no. It was Wolfe and a fellow by the name of Danny Fairland. At least, that's what he called himself. Would there still be a case against this Danny Fairland, even if he were calling himself something else now? Well, when the people got their money back, and then some, and withdrew their charges? Well, nonetheless, Judge... Just remember this, Johnny. Laws governing the handling of securities weren't what they are today. Possibly, I say possibly... At that time, that operation could have been construed as being within the law. Uh, barely. But, even more important, suppose the less guilty of the two, perhaps the one who called himself Danny Fairland, suppose that ever since then, he has lived a wholly exemplary life, more than merely made up for his youthful indiscretion. I see. Yes, in other words, you know full well the name of the man who used to call himself Danny Fairland. Now, what are you talking about, Johnny? How could I possibly know anything about him now? I see. Well, thanks. Uh, incidentally, though... Yes, sir. If you should happen to need the services of a good, completely dependable stockbroker here in town, uh, may I recommend a man by the name of... Thomas R. Morgan? It was after dark by now, but I still had plenty of time. Item four, a dollar even for a cab to the southern edge of Monroe Park. Trying to bribe a certain key from one of the guards about to go off duty wouldn't work. So I did the only thing I could think of at the moment and helped myself to it after roughing him up a little, but then tucking a sawbuck into one of his pockets. As a result... The appointed meeting place, a little tool shed there in a dark, tree-covered corner of the park, held not only me, but the guard. He lay quietly among the rakes and shovels, securely bound and gagged. And the time passed slowly. Nine o'clock. Ten o'clock. It began to get chilly, uncomfortable, and I began to feel a bit uneasy. Finally, as a distant clock boomed out 11, I heard footsteps outside the shack. Footsteps of only one, however, pacing slowly back and forth. I hoped it was Thomas Morgan. But what if Wolf played it smart and didn't show? 
Gently, gently as possible, I opened the door a bit, just a crack. And then I froze because I heard the steps of another man. Good evening, Thomas. Henry, I didn't think you were coming. You said 11 o'clock. What's that? That noise. What? Nothing, nothing. You're late. You didn't think I'd meet you in a place like this without first making certain you hadn't been foolish and tried to bring someone along with you? I wish to heaven I had been able to. In which case, the friend I told you about would release the information in the sealed envelope to the papers. And in 24 hours, you'd be ruined. <laughs> oh, Thomas. Don't ever make that mistake. You mean if you should do this to me again? Exactly. <laughs> and I probably will. But there's nothing you can do about it. Ever. Now, the money, please. Very well, Henry. Here you are. Splendid. Thank you. No, Thomas. Oh, you aren't going to count it? Or should I? You know, I trust you implicitly. Even as you can trust me. You don't... Uh, now leave by the south gate and go home. I'll just wait here to be sure that you do. Good night, Thomas. Oh... Not bad for an evening's work. Not bad is right, buddy. That is for me. I'll take that dough from you. Come on, come on. Thanks. Who are you? Blackmail racket, huh? What are you talking about? What I heard from inside the shack. Put down that gun now and listen to me. Nah, you listen to me, buddy. You got that poor guy on a string, so maybe I can take him too, huh? You? Sure. Who are you? Somebody's holding some dope on him in a sealed envelope, huh? No. That's what you told him. So if I get the envelope, whatever's in it, I can put the B on him too, huh? No, no, please, you don't understand. No, and whatever it is you know about him, you're doing okay. And now, friend, when you lead me to that envelope, I'll have a racket of my own, right? So, buddy, if you want to stay alive, you take me to that envelope. But there is none. You lying bastard. <laughs> no, I'm not. That's the truth. And put that gun away. Now, listen. You don't produce that envelope for me. All I got to do is blow your lying head But off. I tell you, there is none. That was just a bluff to keep him on the hook, I swear it. That was only a bluff. You think for a minute I'd ask anyone else in with me on a thing like this? You mean you're just a lone wolf, Mr. Wolf? Believe me, I'm the only one. How do you know my name? It happens to be my job. My name is Johnny Dollar. Investigator? That's right. Your friend Morgan is a client of mine. Oh, I see. Now, should we take a little walk? Why? Are you kidding? You're all through, Wolf. Emma? You bet you are. That's where you're wrong, daughter. You're forgetting that the only names connected with that stock swindle years ago were yours and that of a man who called himself Danny Fairland. Yes, and Danny Listen, Fairland. if a crook like you tried to claim that today Danny Fairland is somebody else, you think anybody believe you? Yes. Because, daughter, if I tell what I know... You'll only hang yourself. Not for the swindle that nobody cares about anymore, but for this blackmail bit. As for any tales about the past you might think of telling, you can take my word for it. They'll never hit the papers. You see, I know a judge. Well, Mr. Wolf. Turn him in. Take the chance that he might be able to hurt Thomas Morgan. 
or let him go with the full knowledge that I could prove a charge of blackmail against him. What would you have done? Oh? Well, that's just exactly what I did. Expense account total, including incidentals, eighty-eight forty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a raging blizzard in the middle of May. And the pure white snow carries the mark of death. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Reddick, is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast were Santos Ortega as Henry B. Wolfe, Sam Gray as Thomas Morgan, William Redfield as Harvey Wakeman, Robert Dryden as Judge Amos Ortway. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hannah speaking. Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, the episode called The Lone Wolf Matter, from the spring of 1961 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The day after tomorrow, August 3rd, would have been the 100th birthday of the lyricist, composer, and producer Richard Adler. He's best known as the co-creator of the scores to the classic Broadway musical comedies The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. Even after the very untimely death of his songwriting partner Jerry Ross in 1955 at the age of 29, Mr. Adler continued to write tunes and Doris Day had a big hit with his lyric to Everybody Loves a Lover, with music by Robert Allen, in 1958. Adler and Ross, though, had shared the credits for both music and lyrics during their all-too-brief collaboration. Ironically, their biggest hit, on the radio and in the record stores, came not from one of their two Tony Award-winning smash Broadway shows, but rather from a one-off pop song for a then-young singer named Tony Bennett, who shares a birthday with Mr. Adler and who'll be 95 this Tuesday. The recording hit the charts in September of 1953, and it stayed there for a remarkable 25 weeks. By his own account, Mr. Bennett didn't want to record the song. He said the record producer Mitch Miller and the arranger-conductor Percy Faith practically had to tie him down to get him to do it. Well, good for them. Recorded on St. Patrick's Day, 1953, for Columbia Records, here is Tony Bennett singing Richard Adler and Jerry Ross's Rags to Riches. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire My clothes may still be torn and tattered 
But in my heart I'd be a king Your love is all that ever mattered It's everything So open your arms And you'll open the door To every treasure that I'm hoping for Hold me and kiss me and tell me you're mine evermore Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to riches My fate is up to you Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to riches My fate is up to Tony Bennett and his big 1953 hit, Rags to Riches, written by Jerry Ross and Richard Adler. Mr. Adler, as I said, remained active in show business, including producing and directing many special events. One of them was the famous 1962 birthday party at Madison Square Garden for President John F. Kennedy, the party that featured Marilyn Monroe's version of Happy Birthday. Richard Adler, whose centennial is this week, passed away in 2012 at the age of 90. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Whenever we introduce a Jack Benny show, we mention his most famous running joke, his character's miserliness. Well, we're about to hear an episode of George Burns and Gracie Allen's show that purports to tell us how... Jack Benny became so stingy. Some of his other trademark gags are here, too, like his ancient Maxwell automobile, his celebrity next-door neighbors, Ronald and Benita Coleman, his own radio show's sponsor, Lucky Strike Cigarettes, and his constant claim to being only 39 years old. And we'll hear a slang term we don't often hear nowadays, a plunger. Not a bathroom utensil, but rather a person who gambles or spends money recklessly. The real thing to listen for in this show, though, is the work of three absolute masters of comedy, George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Jack Benny. It's like hearing an opera with Luciano Pavarotti, Joan Sutherland, and Cheryl Milnes, or having an outfield with Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, and Babe Ruth. 
I'll stop now and just mention that we have played this show before on the big broadcast, but our co-producer, Jill Arald Bailey, has found another recording of it with much better audio. It's the March 31st, 1949 installment of NBC's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen, with guest star Jack Benny. Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George? Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. If it's free, I'll have a cup, too. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. That drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. With our special guests, Jack Benny, yours truly, Toby Reed, Joseph Kearns, Harry Lubin of the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Today we find the Burnses sitting in a booth in the Brown Derby restaurant. It seems their old friend, Jack Benny, has invited them to lunch, and they're waiting for him to arrive. Gracie, I wish you hadn't told me Jack were... were I wish you hadn't arranged uh, Jack, uh, for us to have lunch with Jack. It's, it's always so embarrassing. Uh, what do you mean? One of those lousy tips he leaves. He's been eating here five years, and he's yet to tip more than a dollar. Well, a dollar isn't a bad tip. That's for the five years. <laughs> Besides, if we're his guests, he'll, he'll make us order crackers and milk. The cheapest thing on the menu. Well, Judge, I wish you wouldn't talk that way about Jack. He's always been awfully nice to me. Did you see the birthday present he sent me? Why, no. Well, it's a coupon which entitles me to a year's subscription to Harper's Bazaar. From Jack? Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is fill it out and send it in with seven dollars. <laughs> Harper's Bazaar is six dollars. Well, Jack gets a dollar commission. <laughs> Jack Benny hasn't put his hand in his pocket. January will be 80 years. <laughs> keeping him. Doesn't he know what time it is? No. He's too tight to buy a watch. He tells time by the sun. Oh, George tells time by the sun. I'm not kidding. He... Shh. Here he comes. Oh, hello, George. Hello, Gracie. Oh, hi, hi Jack. Jack. I'm sorry I'm late, kids. These cloudy days throw me. <laughs> what did I tell you? Oh, waiter. Oh, waiter, we're ready to order. Yes, sir. Would Madame like to start with a cocktail? Oh, no, thanks. I never drink. <laughs> I meant a shrimp cocktail. No matter how small it is, I never drink. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Burns will have a steak, and I'll have a broiled lobster. <laughs> Steak and broiled lobster? Hmm. Well, they're both very good here, but as long as you're in the brown derby, you really should order the specialty of the house. You see, crackers and milk. 
<laughs> oh, I've changed my mind. I won't have a steak. Good, good. I'll have lamb chops. <laughs> well, the, the crackers are very crisp here, and they put the crumbs in a sack so you can take them home. <laughs> Uh, Madame will enjoy the lamb chops. We serve them with little paper panties on. Well, don't your legs get cold? <laughs> uh, Grace, uh, that's, uh, that's our order, waiter. Uh, how about you, Jack? I'll have crackers and milk. <laughs> that was a delicious meal, Gracie. Uh, where did Jack go? Well, the waiter refused to give him any more crackers, so he went to complain to the manager. My gosh. He talked him out of extra milk. Yeah, wasn't that clever? He kept handing his glass of milk to the waiter and saying, put a head on this. <laughs> <laughs> and mark, mark my words, we'll get stuck with the check as usual. Well, George, that's your own fault. When the check comes, Jack always says, here, I'll take it. But then you always speak up and say, no, Jack, I'll get it. So he lets you get it. That's right. He knows I'll say that. Well, sure. Well, today when he says, here, I'll take it, I'll just keep my big mouth shut. How do you like this place? They refuse to give me extra crackers. Just wait till they ask me to put more bluing in their tablecloths. <laughs> I'll show them, you know. Excuse me, gentlemen. Here's your check. That'll be $10.30. Here, I'll take it. <laughs> Well, somebody say something. That will be ten dollars and thirty cents. You shut up. <laughs> Look, George. George, if you want the check, I won't fight you. I don't want the check. And in that case, we'll fight. Jack, you're the stingiest man who ever lived. Oh, is that so? Yes, that's so. Well, don't act so proud. You're not the first one who ever said that. <laughs> now, please, please, don't get into a fight. There's no point to it. No point to it? You're the only two men in the world who couldn't hurt each other. <laughs> well, I'm not paying this check. After all, Jack, you invited us to lunch. Sure, I make a nice gesture. This is the thanks I get. <laughs> George, let's not make a scene. Go ahead and pay the check. All right, but I just want to say this. Jack, if you let me pay this check, you're a low, miserable, tight-fisted, conniving miser. You're a disgrace to our profession, and I'll never speak to you again as long as I live. Well. Now, Mr. Burns, if you've finished, I have a few words to say. What are they? Here's the check. <laughs> All right, George, we're home now. Calm down and forget about Jack Benny. I can't forget about him. How a man can go through life letting someone else pay his way, I'll never know. Well, now, don't let it make you so nervous. My goodness. 
When you paid that check, you were so upset you could hardly get my purse open. You know, Gracie, Jack didn't used to be this way. When we were in vaudeville with him, he was an altogether different fellow. Say, now that you mention it, he was. Well, people used to call him Generous Jack the Plunger. Yes, in those days... <laughs> in those days, he spent money like water. I wonder what slowed him down to such a drip. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the disappointment of you marrying me instead of him. He was pretty sweet on you in those days. Well, I liked him, too. You know, Jack was awfully good-looking. Yeah. Of course, that was a long time ago. Now he has to use makeup. <laughs> Tell me something, Gracie. Jack Benny was, was a big star, young, good-looking, talented, loaded with money and a big spender. And I was just a struggling young song and dance man. Why did you marry me instead of Jack? Oh, George, you don't have to ask that, do you? No, I guess I don't. Well, good, because I haven't got an answer. <laughs> oh, fine. You know, I, I can't get over the change in Jack. When he was courting me, he was the most generous man in the world. He certainly was. Remember the night you both proposed to me? Sure. We got into an argument, and I hit Jack over the head with his violin. Gee, I'll never forget that night. That was 16 years ago, but it seems like yesterday. I remember Jack arrived in my house first. He brought along his violin to serenade me, and when I went to the Hi, Gracie. Why, generous Jack. That's me, baby. Here's a couple of dozen orchids for you. Oh, Jack, they're so expensive. What do I care? I always say money is made to be spent. I mean, you can't take it with you. <laughs> hey, Gracie, let's go out tonight and have a big champagne party. I've had a dozen cases of the most expensive champagne flown in from France. Oh, I I'm sorry, Jack. I don't drink. But, Gracie, Mum's extra dry. Well, then let her drink it. <laughs> Besides, oh, we don't want to be gone when George Burns gets here. George Byrne. Mm -hmm. Will he be here tonight? Mm -hmm. I thought he was playing Altoona. <laughs> well, he was, but he got into an argument with the manager. He said he'd never play that theater again as long as he lived. What'd the manager say? That was the manager talking. <laughs> oh, well, Gracie, I'd hoped we'd be alone tonight. There's a question I plan to. I'll tell you what. Let's go for a ride in my new car. You, you've bought another new car? What happened to your stuffed bear cat? Ah, the man in the filling station admired it, so I gave it to him. <laughs> uh, Jack, what kind of a car did you buy this time? A Maxwell. <laughs> but I... I probably won't keep it long yet. Well, Jack, I can't be gone when George gets here. He's in love with me. Yeah, so am I, Gracie. Will you marry me? Oh, Jack, get up off your knees. You'll ruin your new suit. So what? I'll throw it away. It's old anyway. I've had it since yesterday. <laughs> well, Gracie, look, I'm... Oh, that must be George. Come in. Hello, Gracie. I just... Uh... Jack Benny, what are you doing down on your knees? 
I'm proposing to Gracie. But Gracie, I want you to marry me. You? How could you support her? Who's planning to? <laughs> Look, Gracie, don't marry this broken-down vaudeville hoofer. Well, I think George is a very good dancer. You ought to see him do that adagio dance with his girl partner. It isn't easy to throw a person ten feet in the air and then catch them. You said it. But that girl hasn't dropped George once. <laughs> but, Gracie, what future has George got dancing in vaudeville? Vaudeville is dead. It's been killed. Is that true, George? Well, you don't expect him to confess, do you? <laughs> well, me, look at I'm I'm, in, I'm a violinist. I can go in that new business called radio. Yeah? Well, listen to this. I love you, love you, love you, I do. You're the only girl that I adore. Oh. <laughs> oh, Jack, when George sings, doesn't it just send you? Yeah, but not far enough. <laughs> now, if you want to hear some real music, listen to this. <laughs> You know, this is called The Flight of the Bumblebee. I've been told I play it very realistically. Oh, you do, Jack. When you play it, it actually sings. <laughs> you did say stings. <laughs> S-T-I-N-K. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, here's my violin. Let's see what you can do with it. Okay. Here's what I can do with it. Oh. Oh, George, you knocked him unconscious with his violin. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You might have broken a string. <laughs> I'll teach him to try to steal my girl. Oh. Oh, look, he's coming, too. What happened? Where am I? You're at my house, Jack. Who are you? I'm your girl, Gracie Allen. You brought me these orchids, remember? I bought all those orchids? I must be nuts. They cost a fortune. But your generous Jack the plunger. Plunger, schmunger. Money doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> but, Jack, you, you always say you can't take it with you. Sister, if I can't take it with me, I'll find a way to send it. <laughs> and you'll get a bill for these orchids tomorrow. Good night. <laughs> comes back to me now, Gracie. From that night on, Jack Benny was a tightwad. Yeah, it was that blow on the head that did it. George, do you realize what this means? It's our fault that Jack is stingy. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, then it's up to us to change him back. Yeah, I've got it. Hit him over the head with his violin again. <laughs> yeah, that might do it. <laughs> but I can't do that again. Why not? Well, we were young guys then. I can't hit a man with gray hair. We'll take it off.
had a talk with Dr. Miller, the psychiatrist. He says the blow on the head might turn Jack Benny into generous Jack the Plunger. Oh, wonderful. But he says we'll have to create the same situation we were in 16 years ago. Oh, but George, he, he was proposing to me when you hit him. He can't do that now. I'm married to you. Well, you'll have to pretend that we've split up and that you're single again. You get Jack to give you a date. Oh, well, maybe he won't do it. I, I'm not as young and pretty as I used to be. Oh, Grace. Huh? Hmm? <laughs> Gracie, you haven't changed since the day I married you. You're young, lovely, sweet, desirable. Oh, thank you, George. You haven't changed either. I haven't? No, you felt the same way about me then. <laughs> yeah, well, run along and see Jack. Yes? Oh, oh, hello, Gracie. Hello, Jack. I suppose you came over to apologize for George's behavior at lunch yesterday. Well, no. Why should I care what my ex-husband does? Ex-husband? Oh, didn't you know? It was in all the columns. Well, I haven't been getting the paper lately. <laughs> the Colemans have it brought right into their house now. <laughs> So you and George have called it off, mm -hmm. huh? Mm-hmm. I'm single again. I'd uh, even have a date if a very attractive man asked me. I'd love to ask you, of course. I'm not as attractive as I used to be. Huh? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, you are, Jack. Oh, go on. I'm much older than I was then. Oh, no, you're not. You're still 39. <laughs> You've never married, Jack. Oh, I guess I've been waiting for you, Gracie. Is there, there still a chance for me? Well, maybe. You used to say that the girl you married would have everything. Mink coats, Cadillacs, diamonds, and all the money she could spend. Do you, you still feel that way? Certainly. That's why I want to marry you. You've got all those things. <laughs> Gee, Gracie, we were meant for each other. Now, how about it? Oh, I don't know, Jack. You have to court me first. Again? Uh-huh. Call on me tonight and bring the orchid. But I did all that. That was 16 years ago. Well, didn't you save them? <laughs> you know, they keep forever in the icebox. Well, as a matter of fact, I do have a lot of the things you gave me. I keep them pressed between the pages of a book. You brought me such nice flowers. I used to bring you candy, too. Yeah, I wish I could get that book open. <laughs> well, I'll see you tonight, Gracie. Yeah, well, it's a date, Jack. And be sure and bring your violin. Okay. Shall we have an evening with Beethoven? No, come by yourself. <laughs> George, Jack Benny will come courting me tonight, just like he did 16 years ago. That's great. Now, we want to duplicate that night exactly, so you arrive after Jack has been here for a while. Just a minute. I don't like the idea of leaving you alone with that old gray wolf. <laughs> Might try to kiss you. Oh, George, relax. He's bringing his violin. So what? So by the time he carries that over, he'll be all tired. <laughs> Well, 
Okay. I'll go down to the drugstore. See you later. Oh, well, kiss me goodbye. Okay. George, have you been carrying violins? <laughs> no, just the rosin. I'll see you. <laughs> Gracie. Oh, Jack, how nice to see you. Gee, this is just like old times. Do you still like flowers? Love them. Well, here you are, baby. Here's enough flowers to fill this room. Oh, how nice. A package of seeds. <laughs> I mean, after all, it's spring. You know, half the fun of flowers is watching them grow and seeing them raise their tiny green heads. Which reminds me, George won't be around tonight. <laughs> I better get down on my knees and propose to you right now before he gets here. <laughs> Darn it, I'm too late. I heard a door open. That was your knees. <laughs> Come in. Hello, Gracie. Oh, that's Jack Benny. What are you doing down on your knees? Never mind. Just help me up. <laughs> you proposed to me, George. Well, Gracie, I want you to marry me. You married her once. Give somebody else a chance. <laughs> well, George, if you're proposing, get down on your knees like Jack. Okay. <laughs> oh, isn't this thrilling? Two fiery lovers bidding for my hand. Hey, George. George, does this cold floor bother your rheumatism? <laughs> murder. And I found some stuff that's awfully good. Really? What is it? I've tried everything. It's a new liniment. Works wonders. Mm. That's for me. My knees have been killing me. Isn't the rainy season just torture? <laughs> Awful. I must get that liniment. I'll let you try some of mine. Would you? Oh, some fiery lovers. We'll have to honeymoon at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Why? You're proposing to me, remember? Oh, come in. Hi, Gracie. Where's the... George and Jack Benny down on their knees? What goes on here? Well, can't you guess, Bill? Somebody dropped a penny, huh? <laughs> guess again, comedian. Bill, we happen to be proposing marriage. Well, I hope you'll be very happy together. <laughs> Would you like to drop back in about two weeks? Oh, not, not me. I want to stick around and see who asks who what and what the answer is. Bill, look, Dimples, uh, we're proposing marriage to Gracie. You see, George and Gracie aren't married anymore. Gracie, is this true? Well, uh, uh, yes, Bill. I, I'm single now, but uh, George wants me to marry him again, and so does Jack Benny. I, I can't decide between them. Can't decide between them? Gracie, this is your chance to marry one of the biggest stars in the country, a, a man with a great future in television. Yes, yes, I was good, you know. Not only, not only a great talent, but loaded with personality, charm, good looks. Blue eyes, don't forget those. Gracie, you lucky girl, this is your chance to marry me. <laughs> you? Scram, 
Bill, you're lousing up everything. Pay no attention to Gracie. I'm asking you to be the mother of my children. How many have you got? <laughs> None yet, but in a couple of years or so, I'm sure we'll hear the patter of little feet. Well, marry me, Gracie, and we'll hear the patter of little feet tomorrow. Tomorrow? Sure, you'll be running back and forth to the kitchen bringing me Maxwell House coffee. <laughs> Think how happy we'll be, Gracie, with rich, delicious, mellow Maxwell House coffee from morning till night. Well, if you're going to get commercial about it, you can marry me and feel her level best. <laughs> oh, you serve Maxwell House coffee, too, huh? Isn't it great, Jack? You know, Maxwell House is a blend of choice Latin American coffees. Radiant roasted to the peak of flavor perfection. Bill, I meant that if Gracie married me, we'd have plenty of luckies. Luckies? Yes. What do I work for? Darned if I know you got all the money in the world. <laughs> he was, you can buy Maxwell House by the carload. And Maxwell House is America's favorite coffee. Always good to the last drop. How about it, Gracie? Will you marry me? Well, I'm sorry, Bill, but it's between George and Jack. But don't feel bad. Whichever one I choose, you'll be the best man at the wedding. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> so large. <laughs> How about it, Gracie? How about it? Will you marry me? No, she's going to marry me. But, Gracie, George has no future. I mean, radio's passe. I'll be a sensation in that new business, television. Well, so will George. In fact, I've heard lots of people say that television would collapse without him. They said it would collapse without George? That's right. They said that George single-handed is holding up television. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how they meant that. Look, I know how to settle this, Gracie. I'll serenade you. George, hand me my Stradivarius. This violin is a Stradivarius? Certainly. I got it from Sam Stradivarius, the pawnbroker. Oh, Sam. <laughs> now, let me have it. Well, you heard him, George. Let him have it. I'll be glad to. Oh. Well, it happened just like it did 16 years ago. Better. This time I hit him before he played. <laughs> Where am I? Well, you're at my house. Who are you? Well, I'm your girl, Gracie Allen. You brought me these seeds, remember? I brought you a package of seeds? What a cheap thing to do. I'll call the florist and have him bring you $100 worth of orchids. Gosh. And a potted plant for your father here. George <laughs> Burn. Oh. Well, let's all go to Ciro's and have a champagne dinner on me. Mum's extra dry. Hasn't that poor old lady had a drink yet? <laughs> Gee, what's happened to me? I'm spending money like crazy, and I can't stop. That's right. You're generous Jack again. Again? You mean I've been this way before? Well, sure. You used to be generous Jack the plunger. Then George hit you over the head with your violin, and you stopped spending money. Getting hit over the head with my violin made me stop spending money? That's right. Hmm. Jack, put down that violin. Jack, oh, Jack, stop, Jack, stop hitting yourself over, over the head. head. Jack, Jack. Until next Thursday, where we will have as our guest Robert Montgomery. Good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Jack Benny. What more is there to say, except that they appeared together on that Maxwell House Coffee Time program in the early spring of 1949. 
This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. On Gunsmoke tonight, an episode with an alliterative title, Poor Pearl. It comes from February 19, 1955, CBS, and the series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Chester, will you take this stuff down to the depot and see that it gets in the mail for me, huh? Yes, sir. There's something wrong about that fellow, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what fellow? Him. Across the street there. All I can see out of that window is sky, Chester. Oh, I, I forgot you were sitting back there. I, I've been watching him so long, I just naturally thought you had too. Huh. Well? Well, what? The man, Chester, what's wrong about him? Oh, well, he drove up to the Long Branch in a wagon and got down and went inside, and then he come back out. And then do you know what he did? Uh, he drove off? No, sir. He's still there. What did he do, Chester? Well, he got a big old rifle out of his wagon, and he loaded it. Then he put it under his arm, and he's been walking up and down ever since. It's, it's like he's waiting to shoot somebody. There. See him, Mr. Dillon? That tall, rangy fellow there. Yeah. See how he keeps looking up and down the street? Come on. You think he is out to shoot somebody? Well, I don't know, but it's worth asking him. Well, he sure picked a fine spot right across from the jail. Yeah, well, I'm glad he did. Anyway, he ain't gonna run very far with nothing but a team and wagon. You ever seen him before? No, sir, he's a stranger to me. He looks real country, though, don't he? Yeah, but he's not poor. That's a good wagon he's got. Yeah. Looks brand new to me. Yeah. All right, stand aside now, huh? Yes, sir. 
Hello. I don't recall you, mister. And my name is Dillon. Oh? I'm the marshal here. Oh. Why, sure, I, I knew I'd heard that name, Dillon. Pleased to meet you. Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. Hello, Chester. How do you do? I'm Willie Calhoun, Marshal. I, I don't get to Dodge, but seldom. Not till lately. Oh, you live around here? Got me a little place out at Spring Point. Yeah. It's doing fine. I, uh, noticed you got a new wagon. Well, that's for Pearl. I wanted her to be proud. Yeah. Hey, your wife? No. No, Pearl Bender, Marshal. She's gonna be my wife. That's what I come to town for. I made up my mind. A Pearl Bender works on the Long Branch here, doesn't she? I'm waiting for her to come along now. I made up my mind, Marshal. Is that what the rifle's for? What do you mean? Well, you've made up your mind, but maybe she hasn't. Oh, oh no. No, it ain't like that at all. I, I wouldn't force Pearl into nothing. Then what is the rifle for? man's got a right to carry a rifle. Yeah, but the way you do it, it's like a man walking around with a six-gun in his hand, ready to shoot. Now, come on, tell me the truth, Calhoun. There ain't nobody gonna stop me in Pearl, Marshal. Well, why should they? They might try. Who might? I fight my own fights, Marshal. Now, not here you don't, not with a gun. I'll kill him. I made up my mind to kill him if he gets in my way. Now, look, Calhoun, why don't you give me the right... Here now. Stay back. Here, Chester. Hold it on him. Got him covered, Mr. Dillon. You got no right to do that. I'll do anything to stop a killing. Now, you're going to tell me who you're looking for? You're interfering. I ain't going to tell you nothing. All right. Chester, take him over to the office and keep him there. Yes, sir. You can't lock me up. I'm going to get married. We're not locking you up, but you're going to stay in my office till I find out about this. Okay, Chester. All right, get moving, Calhoun. And don't try to run or I'll bang you right on the head. It's Matt, Kitty. Well, come in. Oh, thank you. What's your trouble, Matt? Uh, first, Kitty, I want to find Pearl Bender. Hmm? Does uh, she have a room here? Right down our hall, but she won't be back for a half hour. Oh? She in trouble? 
Kitty, hmm? uh, did you ever hear of Willie Calhoun? That long fellow with the sandy hair? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Well, he's been in the Long Branch a couple of times. Acts like he's real sweet on Pearl. Well, he says that they're going to get married. What? Today, according to him. Well, that'll be quite a surprise to Webb Thorne. Ah, so that's who it is. Webb Thorne, huh? Well, look, Matt, I, I don't know anything about all this. Pearl never talks much. But I've heard Webb say he'd shoot anybody who tried to run off with her. And Willie Calhoun says he'll shoot anybody who tries to stop him. How could Pearl be in love with this Calhoun? She's only seen him a few times, and she and Webb have been thick ever since he started dealing Pharaoh over there. Six months ago. Yeah, well, maybe Webb doesn't know about it. Well, he'll find out soon enough, won't he? Yeah. Say, that's an idea, Kitty. Hmm? And the sooner the better. And I'm going to be there when he does. How are you going to manage that? Uh, when Pearl comes back, send her over to my office, will you? Oh. Okay, Matt. But this is going to make her awful mad. It's going to make all of them awful mad, Kitty. Marshal, if you've got any charges against me, I'd like to know what they are. I'm not arresting you, Webb. I told you that. And why are you taking me to jail? I'm not taking you to jail. Well, this is the jail, isn't it? It's also my office. Go on in. Okay. Pearl. Hello, Webb. What are you doing here, Calhoun? Go on in, Webb. I didn't let him talk none, Mr. Dillon. Just like you told me. Oh, good, Jesse. You're making trouble, Marshal. I don't like it. The trouble's already made, Calhoun. What trouble? Webb, I hear you've said that you'd kill any man that tried to run off with Pearl. Is that right? I sure would. Well, Calhoun here says that he'll kill you if you try to stop him. Try to stop him? What's he been up to? He came to town today to get married. Married? Mm-hmm. He and Pearl. And he brought a rifle with him. <laughs> I don't believe it. That's my rifle Chester's holding. I don't mean that. I mean about you and Pearl. I made up my mind. I'm going to do it. You ain't going to stop me. I'll stop you. Well, if they want to get married, they're going to, and there isn't going to be any trouble over it, now or later. Who told you they want to get married, him? That's right, he did. But it's Pearl that's going to settle this. Either you or him. She can say right now which one of you she wants, and the other's going to get out and stay out. Is that clear? Why, sure, Marshal. That's fine with me. Pearl knows her own mind, don't you, Pearl? Go on. Tell him. Go ahead, Pearl. Marshal... I never told Willie I'd marry him. What? I can't marry him. Yes, you can, Pearl. I've made up my mind. He's made up his mind. Sure I have. And I don't care what I gotta do to get her away from you. Tell him again, Pearl. Willie, I can't marry you. I never said I would. Well, you can speak out, Pearl. You can. I'm telling you the truth. Please. Now, Pearl... Okay, Calhoun, you heard her. 
Leave her alone. Leave us both alone. Once I make up my mind, I never change it. I'd rather see her dead than with him. Look, Calhoun, Webb didn't stop you. I did. So you go gunning for anybody, and it's me. Well, I got nothing against you, Marshal. All right, then go back to your place at Spring Point and stay out of Dodge till you get over this. I'll send your rifle out by somebody later on. You think I'm crazy, don't you? You'll forget all about this soon enough. So long, Pearl. Goodbye. You know, he is crazy. After this, you stay away from men like that, Pearl. Understand? Yeah, sure, Webb. Sure, I understand. Come on. I've got to get to work. All right. You handle this fine, Marshal. It'd have been a killing sure otherwise. Yeah. So long, Pearl. Goodbye, Marshal. Chester. Goodbye, Pearl. Oh, Mr. Dillon, I feel kindly sorry for that poor Willie Calhoun. He sure had everything all wrong, didn't he? Something's still wrong, Chester, and I don't know if it's because of him or because of them. And I hope I never find out. Two weeks later, I heard that Pearl and Webb Thorne got married. And they moved into a house that Webb owned. And Pearl quit working at the Long Branch. I figured that would settle things for good, so the first time I found a man riding out his way, I sent Calhoun's rifle back to him. Then I forgot about it. Until one morning just before daylight, when Chester came running in and woke me up. I got dressed, and we went out onto the plaza. It was that boy who worked out at Webb's house that come for Doc, Mr. Dillon. And then Doc woke me up and said, come get you. What's all the trouble about, Chester? He didn't say, except that there's been a shooting. Yeah, I know, but who did it? All the boy told Doc was that it happened in the sleeping room. He didn't say who did it or even who got shot. Ah, he's a real smart boy, isn't he? Well, it ain't his fault, Mr. Dillon. See, he heard a shot and then Pearl hollered through the door for him to go fetch Doc. Sounds like maybe she shot Webb, don't it? I mean, since it was her that called the boy. Well, we'll find out in a minute. Hey, look, they left the front door open. Yeah. Well, if it was, Pearl, she can't run far. Doc should have brought you with him and sent the boy after me. I told him that, but the boy had already left. Doc. Doc. Wait there, Matt. It's Pearl, Matt. She's been shot. Pearl? Where's Webb? He's out of town. I went over to Abilene for a few days. Who told you, the boy? Pearl did. She's still alive, Matt. Huh. But she won't be for long. If you want to talk to her, you'd better hurry. Who did it, Doc? She'll tell you. Go ahead. I'll wait here with Chester. There's nothing more than I can do for her. Okay. Pearl? Hello, Marshal. Do, uh, do you mind talking? I can talk. 
A little. Who did it, Pearl? I was asleep, Marshal. Window was open. Heard a man outside yell something. I, I don't know what it was, but I, I recognized his voice and I sat up and then he shot me. Who? Who was he? Willie. Willie Calhoun? Why would he shoot me? He knows why I couldn't marry him. What? Webb said he'd kill me if I ever left him. And I know he would. You told Calhoun that? Told him enough. He, he knew. I guess he couldn't stand my being married to Webb. You didn't have much chance either way, did you, Pearl? I didn't know Willie do this. I wish you'd told me about Webb. It doesn't matter now. Can I see Doc Marshall? Yeah, I'll go get him. Bye, Marshall. Oh. Goodbye, Pearl. She wants you, Doc. All right. First, tell me. Are you sure that she won't make it? She can't possibly live more than another half hour. Man. Okay, you stay with her. I got a man to run down. Outside the house, we found Calhoun's tracks and saw that after the shooting, he'd jumped on his horse and ridden north. A few minutes later, we were mounted and headed in the same direction. It was nearly dark when we reached Spring Point and found his cabin. And as there was no sign of life outside, we dismounted and went up to the door. I kicked it open and jumped inside, but the place was empty. There was no choice but to wait, so we hid our horses in a shed out back and then made ourselves at home inside the cabin. I sure do wish we could light a lamp, Mr. Dillon. Well, we can if Calhoun ever shows up. Hope he ain't too long. I'm getting hungry. He might not come at all, Chester. Yeah, say, that's right. Why would he come here? He must know we're after him. And an ordinary man had run, but... I'm gambling that Calhoun's too tied to this place to leave it for long, even to escape being caught. He's kindly crazy, ain't he? Well, that's not going to keep him from hanging. You think he'll put up a fight, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, he'll fight. Oh, my. That poor Pearl. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going out of the well and fill this up, Chester. I'll be right back. All right, chick. Hold it, Marshal. Right there. One move and I'll kill you. You turn around. Drop the bucket. Is that the rifle you used this morning, Calhoun? I'm going to use it again. I've got to kill you and Chester now. I'll get a bullet on you. You're going to drop your gun belt, Marshal. Real slow. Now go ahead. No. Go on. Do it. It's like I say, Calhoun, you can kill me, but I'll get one bullet in you. You're awful willing to die, Marshal. It'll be worth it to take a woman killer with me. What? Any man that'd ambush a woman. What are you saying, Marshal? What woman? What woman? Pearl. 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 That's right. Not Pearl. I didn't shoot Pearl. She heard your voice. She recognized it. Marshal, that wasn't Pearl. Of course it was. Now, you're lying to me. Why are you lying to me? I got no reason to lie to you. Why should I? But it couldn't have been Pearl. Now, you're saying it was just to drive me crazy. No. No, I know why you're doing it. To keep me from shooting you. Well, it ain't gonna work, Marshal. You shot Pearl and she's dead. Doc said she couldn't live more than a half hour after I saw her. I don't believe it. That don't make no sense. Wait a minute. You thought it was Webb Thorne, is that it? Of course it was. That's his house. That's his bedroom. Webb's over in Abilene. No. He's been gone two or three days. I... Well, I still don't believe it. What would Pearl be doing in his house? Why shouldn't she have been there? They were married. They... They was married. You didn't know they were married? How would I know that? When they get married... A couple of weeks ago. I wanted Webb Thorne. I I wanted him so that he'd let Pearl go. He said he'd kill her. It's it's him I wanted. Well, you didn't get him, Calhoun. No. No. Now give me the rifle. You take it. I don't care no more. I don't care what happens to me. The law cares. You're going to jail, Calhoun. I just wish you'd shot me. I wish I'd made you shoot me. Go on into the cabin. 
Marshall? What? Can I sit out here a while? Alone? I won't run. No, you won't run. Okay, Calhoun. You sit here. Directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Harry Bartell, and Virginia Christine. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. Poor Pearl, a gun smoke episode from the winter of 1955 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org, check out our website at thebigbroadcast.org, and please visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. The great opera tenor Enrico Caruso passed away just before radio became the dominant entertainment form in America. This despite Caruso's having participated in the first ever radio broadcast to the public from the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House in New York in 1910. It would take quite a few years after that mostly unsuccessful first try for radio to catch on, and for radio receivers to become widely available. Without a doubt, Enrico Caruso would have been one of early radio's biggest stars. He had trumped most of his opera colleagues by taking advantage of the new technology of sound recording by making hundreds of records and millions of dollars from them. But as I say, the great Caruso's demise preceded big-time radio's ascent. He died on August 2nd, 1921, 100 years ago tomorrow. In that same year, 1921, the singer Mario Lanza was born. I don't know if you believe in reincarnation, but Mr. Lanza did. Specifically, he believed he was the reincarnation of Enrico Caruso, and in 1951, he starred in the highly fictionalized biopic The Great Caruso a gigantic box office hit. 
CBS Radio capitalized on the movie's success, and in June of that year, The Mario Lanza Show was born. It later moved to NBC, and one of the shows was devoted to the score of the motion picture, The Great Caruso. We're going to hear an excerpt of that February 29, 1952 program, part of the series, The Mario Lanza Show. Be my love for no one else can end this yearning. From Hollywood, the Coca-Cola Company brings you Mario Lanza. Good evening. The Coca-Cola Company welcomes you to the Mario Lanza Show with the music of Ray Sinatra and his orchestra, transcribed songs by Giselle McKenzie, and tonight's special feature, the presentation of Red Book's annual award for Distinguished Motion Picture Achievement and starring MGM's romantic tenor, whose inspiring voice has thrilled you on the screen, in concert, and on records. And now, in person, Mario Lanza. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. This is one of the proudest moments of my life for two reasons. First, because the Red Book Award is being presented on our program, and secondly, because I was fortunate enough to be in one of the fine pictures for which Dory Sherry of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer has won the award this year. In keeping with the spirit of the occasion, we have selected all of tonight's music from the score of The Great Caruso, and I would like to start by singing the lovely aria, E lucevan le stelle, from La Tosca. Bella fragrante, 
mi cadea fra le braccia Caruso went to see Park Benjamin to apologize, he was greeted by that gentleman's daughter, Dorothy, who was later to become his wife. In the process of becoming acquainted with the young lady, he sang for her Torna Sorrento. And now Ray Sinatra and the orchestra play their arrangement of that beautiful Neapolitan song.
from Leap Year 1952, Mario Lanza, on his self-titled radio show, paying tribute to the great Enrico Caruso, who died 100 years ago tomorrow. Mr. Lanza sang El Luchavan Lestele, and the stars were shining, from Giacomo Puccini's Tosca. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. In some police departments, homicide detectives don't just investigate deaths where foul play is suspected. Sometimes they're also given responsibility for kidnappings. That's the detail detectives Friday and Smith are on in tonight's Dragnet episode. It's called The Big Grab, and it comes from June 21, 1955, NBC and Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A six-year-old girl has been taken from the streets of your city. There's no lead to her whereabouts or to the identity of the kidnapper. Your job, find them. It was Monday, May 1st. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from the business office, and it was 7.28 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide squad room. No, the hair was a little thicker. You know, more of it. Mm-hmm. More like this? Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Short, real short. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what about the eyes? Well, they were kind of close together. Mm-hmm. Hi, Joe. Hi, where'd Frank go? Chief Brown called. He went down there. Mm-hmm. How you doing? Good. Hey, take a look yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right on the old button, yeah. Uh, a couple more eyebrows. What? More eyebrows, a couple more. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Say, this fellow's pretty good. Mm-hmm. A lot better than those guys at the beach. What's that? Guys at the beach, you know, they draw your picture while you wait two bits, something like that, and they draw your picture. Mm-hmm. This looks just like the guy that took the girl. All right. Sure feel bad about that. I really do. Sir? I was just sitting there, you know, folding up the papers from her out, just sitting folding, and all of a sudden I see this thing happen right in front of me. Yeah. Car just pulled up to the curb, and they grabbed the girl. Mm-hmm. There was more than one? Huh? You said they grabbed the girl. Uh, well, no. No, I just said that. <laughs> you know, an expression. It didn't mean there was more than one. Just said that. You know how you do. Yeah. Just one. Kid. That's what he was. Young kid. Mm-hmm. Go forward. Just like a park. Mm-hmm. Joe? Yeah. I just talked to Chief Brown. He wants to know how the picture's coming. About finished. Why? Looks like we might need it right away. Huh? The family just got a ransom note. The suspect was described as WMA, 26 years old, 5 feet 8 and a half inches in height, and weighing about 140 pounds. At approximately 3.10 that afternoon, he'd approached a private school in the Hollywood area and forced Grace Marchand, age 6, into his car. The only witness to the kidnapping had spread the alarm, and in a matter of minutes, every police officer in the area had the description of the man and the car he was driving. Word of the crime had gone out to all policemen in Southern California. They were all looking for a little girl. Units from Juvenile Division, working under Captain John Powers, joined in the search. A roundup of known deviates was started. All available information sources were tapped, but in spite of our efforts at the end of four and a half hours, the child still hadn't been found. 8.02 p.m., Frank and I drove out to the house. We parked our car in the next block and walked to the Marchand residence, where we met with Captain Powers and the missing girl's parents. Thought we could talk in here. Marchands are pretty upset. 
Yeah. What about that note? It's downtown. Leighton Prince are going over it. How'd he get here? Kid brought it. What about him? 16 years old, lives in the neighborhood. Where'd he get it? Says a man approached him in the drugstore at the corner, asked him to deliver a letter. Mm-hmm. Gave the kid a buck. Boy didn't know what was in the letter. What'd it say? Got a copy of it. Here. You want to see your kid alive, get $50,000 in small unmarked bills ready. You'll get a phone call. Don't tell the police. Don't tell anyone. If you do, forget about your daughter. How was it written, Captain? Words were cut out of the evening paper and placed on a plain white sheet. Anything there? We don't know yet. As soon as Leighton Prince are through with it, Larry Sloan's going over it. Mm-hmm. Well, what about this Marshan? Can he swing that kind of money? Yeah, I guess so. He says he will. Are they going to go along with us? I'm not sure. Mrs. Marshan would like us to get off their side. Well, how about him? He wants his daughter back. Well. Aren't you going to talk to him? I guess we better. What about the phone? Hmm? Did you make arrangements to have it covered? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's an extension in the study. We can use that. It's close enough to the one in the master bedroom so we can talk to the Marshans while they're on that one. Okay. Anything new turn up downtown? No, still questioning deviates. Mm. Well, we've taken the kid who brought the note downtown. Going to have him check the mug books. And we better let him see that drawing, too. Yeah. What about the house? You got it covered? Pretty good, yeah. There's a team from Hollywood across the street, another one out in the back. Where are they? One across the street's in a neighbor's house. The other one's in a car out back. Okay. Let's go, huh? Yeah, they're in the living room. All right. How are they taking it? Rough. Here you go. You've got to get them out of the house, then. I know they're going to ruin everything. No, no, just calm down, Dick. How are you, Captain Powers? Mr. Marshan, this is Sergeant Friday and his partner, Frank Smith. How are you, sir? How do you do? This is my wife. How are you, Miss Marshan? Oh, is there anything new? Have you found her yet? No, ma'am, not yet. I told you they're going to get her back. All this mess is just going to make it no, worse. Take it easy, dear. Send them away. I don't want them. It'd be all right if I take her upstairs. Yeah, sure. Come on, honey. Now, why don't you lie down? Try to get some rest. They're going to bring her now, back. Crying's not going to do any good. Did they? Now, come on. Can you get her out of the house? I'm not going to get her. Come on. Maybe it might be better if you waited out in the kitchen. I'll try to get her calm. All right, sir. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah, come on, dear. Did you tell them to leave? Yes, I did. Let's go. Taking it pretty hard. Yeah. Have they called a doctor? He's on his way. Have they got any other children? Yeah, boy, ten. Where's he? Her sisters. Marchand took them over there this evening. Mm-hmm. Well, there are six teams from Metro standing by, four from our detail. How about the sheriff's department? I talked to Dick Karen. They're with us all along the line. Good. This season's bad. I hope the doctor gets here pretty quick. Is there anything we can do? You know the answer to that one. Well. You like some coffee? No, thank you. No, thanks. No, I'm gonna make some anyway. All right. I'm sorry about my wife. That's all right, sir. Taking the whole thing pretty hard. We made any arrangements to get the money, Mr. Marshan? Yes, I called my brother. There's nothing we can do about it tonight. The first thing in the morning, we'll get it together. Mm-hmm. We'd like to be with you. What? We'd like to help you prepare the money. I don't know quite how to say this. What's that, sir? Well, I know you men are trying to help, but I don't want you interfering with the payoff. That's going to make it a little difficult. Maybe so, but that's the way it's got to be. All right. That's the way you want it. Well, it is. You know, it's not going to make much difference. What do you mean? Well, the kidnapper probably knows we're working on the case already. He's counting on the fact that you won't go along with us. What is it you want to do? Well, we'll help you get the money ready, take the numbers of the bills, and prepare the package. We don't want to endanger your daughter's life. As far as we're concerned, you can go right ahead with the payoff when you're contacted. But if we can help now, it'll make it easier after the money's been paid. On who? Huh? Who's it going to be easier on, you or Grace? You're going to make sure we get it back? You're willing to write insurance on that? There's no answer to that question. That's the whole point. We want our daughter back. I don't care what we have to do or how we do it, as long as Grace is back. That's all that's important. We can understand that. I know what you're trying to do, and I appreciate it, but this is our problem. I I don't want to take any chances on something going wrong. As soon as we hear from the man who has her, we'll do what he says. Then you're not going to let us help, huh? No. 
And I think it might be better if you called your man off. You're making it hard for us. I'm not trying to, but can't you understand? All we want is our girl back. It doesn't make any difference how it's done as long as she's home. That's all that counts. What about the man who took her? That's your problem. As soon as Grace is home, I'll go along with you on whatever you want to do. But until then, I don't want you meddling. Thought you said they'd gone. They're just leaving. You're not going to be happy until she's dead, are you? That's not true, ma'am. Well, it looks like it. All these policemen, the whole thing, a lot of noise, nothing more. You're not doing any good. Why don't you get out? They're leaving, dear. When? After they throw Grace up on the front lawn? Is that where they'll All go? All right, honey, now. All right, ma'am, we'll leave. Then get out! Go on! Don't stand around! All right, now, that's enough, Mabel. They know it. All right, now, calm down, will you? This isn't going to do any good. They brought you around. You haven't done anything but make things hard. What are they doing? I'm afraid you better leave. All right, sir, we'll talk to you later. As soon as we get Grace back, I'll call you. What was that, sir? I say, as soon as we get Grace back, I'll call you. Yes, sir. You sure you won't let us help? No, you better go now. Well, now what? All right. Guess we wait. Yeah. What about the surveillance? You going to call it off? No, I don't think so. We'll check it with the skipper. Yeah. be a lot easier if the Marshans had let us help him. At least we know what was going on. Give us a chance. Yeah. This way we're in the cold. Nothing we can do. I wonder if it makes any difference. Huh? Maybe we lost already. We contacted the office and talked with Captain Lorman. We told him what had happened at the Marshand home. He instructed us to keep the place under surveillance, but not to interfere with the movements of the family. Officers in the area were asked to stay away from the house. If the kidnapper wanted to make contact, we would do nothing to stop him. 8.46 p.m., Captain Power stayed on at the scene, and Frank and I went back to the office. We met with Captain Lorman and Chief Detective Stad Brown. You can't count any cooperation from the family, then? No, I don't think so. Father might go along with us, but Ms. Marshand is dead against it. Mm-hmm. How are you going to handle it, Lorman? Keep their place under surveillance. Wait for them to make a move. Mm-hmm. Important thing is not to burn them. Yeah. When do they figure to pick up the money, Joe? Marshan said tomorrow morning. What business is he in? Contractor. Got a company with his brother. They do a lot of work and developments. Just finished a big section out in the valley. You won't have any trouble raising the money, then? No, it didn't seem to bother him. Yeah. What are you going to do about that? The money? Yeah. Well, first thing in the morning, we'll try to get in touch with his bank. Make arrangements to have the serial numbers on the bills noted. Crime lab able to do anything for you? Well, we'll check with them. Should be some way we can make it easier. Mm. And the important thing is to get the girl back. Once we know where she is, we can move a lot faster. Yeah. Homicide, Lorman. Yeah. Uh-huh. Want to give me that address? Yes, sir. Right away. Goodbye. Maybe it's coming over to our side. What do you mean? That was Mr. Marshan. Yeah. He wants to see you right away. Frank and I left the office and drove over to the address Mr. Marshan had given us on the phone. It was an all-night restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. We found him in a booth at the back of the place. Hi, Mr. Marshan. How are you? Sit down, will you? Heard anything new? No. The reason I called, I got to thinking after you'd left. The way we acted isn't going to help any. Not going to make it any easier on anybody. That's right. Mabel and I talked it over. She still isn't too hot on the idea, and I'd appreciate it if you could do what has to be done without her knowing too much about it. We'll do what we can. I don't like to have to put this kind of restriction on you, but right now there doesn't seem to be any other way. We understand. Have you heard anything else from the kidnapper? Not a word. Mm-hmm. Don't imagine he'll try and contact me before I've had a chance to get the money. No, sir. When do you figure on getting it? I'll call my bank at nine, try and make arrangements then. We'd like to be there when you talk to him. All right. What do you plan on doing? Well, first, we want to get the serial numbers and all those bills. I'm sure they'll cooperate. We'll check with our crime lab. 
Maybe something we can use to prepare the money so we'll be able to recognize it a little better. They'll probably want you to make up a special package, too. Well, I'm not going to try and tell you your business. I guess you know what you're doing. Well, we hope so. I'd like to ask a question, though. What's that? You think she's still alive? Well, there's no way of knowing that. Well, you've handled this kind of thing before. You know what the odds are. What do you think? I don't know. I think it's so much easier if we knew. Yes, yeah, sir. It just seems like she has to be alive. I can't imagine anyone would hurt a little girl. I just can't imagine it. Yes, sir. First time she's ever been away from home. She doesn't get along with strangers too well. Poor little kid. I'm sorry. I'm acting like an idiot. No, sir. <laughs> More like a father. We took Mr. Marchand back to his home, and then Frank and I checked out for the night. The next morning at 7.30 a.m., Henry Marchand, Frank, and I met with Ray Pinker in the crime lab. Have you talked to the bank yet? No, we figured we'd check with you, find out what you were going to want. Mm-hmm. How's the money going to be paid? We don't know yet. There's only been the one contact. Yeah, saw that yesterday. What's the best way of working the deal, Ray? You're going to get the numbers on the bills? Yeah. Well, the note said to get the amount in small ones. I guess that means five, tens, and twenties. Mm, probably. be quite a few to work with, won't it? doesn't make a lot of difference. What are you going to do? Well, we can dust the package and the money with silver nitrate. What'll that do? In a matter of time, the moisture from the suspect's hands will combine with the silver nitrate and turn him white. How long will it take? Depends on his body chemistry. Well, about how long? Could be three to four hours. I wouldn't count on it happening that fast, though. Well, how easy is it going to be to spot? Not too hard. Stuff looks almost like a white talcum powder. The wash off easy? No. Should last around three to four days. Mm-hmm. Depends again on how easily he sweats, how often he washes his hands, and how hard he tries to get it off. Yeah. Is there any chance he'll spot it? Can't miss it once it starts to show. Well, then he'll know there's something wrong. He might try to do something to Grace. Well, we might as well face it, Mr. Marchand. If she hasn't been returned in three or four hours, it's probably because he doesn't mean to give her back. I suppose so. As soon as you get the instructions on wrapping the money, let me know right away. We'll get it ready. What are you going to do? We'll mark the paper the money's supposed to be wrapped in. Why? So we can identify it. If he wants the package out of newspaper, we got some on hand. Got some new brown wrapping paper, too. I think we're pretty well set on that score. I don't understand why you're doing all this. Well, if the suspect gets away from the meeting place, we've got to have a way to pick him up. Well, how's the special package going to help? We'll be able to prove it's what the money was wrapped in. Make it easier to be sure we got the right man. Shane was as confident as you seem to be. How do you mean? That we're going to catch the man. Well, once he picks up the money, we've got everything on our side. You're going to have the pickup area staked out? As much as we can. Depends a lot on where the contact is made. Mm-hmm. Right after the payoff, we'll secure the area. Nobody will get out. Ray, is there any way we can mark the car? Hard to say. We could use paint. A lot of things we don't know about the setup. It'd be easier to figure them after we've got all the information. Mm-hmm. If somebody can get close enough to the car, we can drop a capsule of paint on top of it. Put a copter in the area, and you shouldn't have any trouble picking it up. Roger, Friday? Yeah. Phone for you, sir. Thank you. Take it over there, Joe. Okay. Which line? Three. Thank you. Friday speed. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. What? We'll be right over. Let's begin to go. What do you mean? Kidnapper just called. Yeah. He's ready for a meet. The second contact by the kidnapper had been made by telephone. He talked to Mrs. Marchand and instructed her to tell her husband to have the money ready by 6 p.m. that evening. He went on to say that another call would be made giving instructions for payment of the ransom. Mr. Marchand, Frank, and I talked with her about the call, and then we had a meeting with Captain Warman and Chief Detective Thad Brown. It was decided to go ahead as the kidnapper had ordered. At 9.02 a.m., we got $50,000 from the bank. We went back to the city hall and talked to Captain James Fisk. He assigned six girls from the record section to aid us. We divided them into three teams of two each, one calling the numbers on the bills, the other typing a list. At 3.45 p.m., the job was finished. 
The money was taken to the crime lab and dusted with silver nitrate powder. Because we didn't have the final instructions on the delivery of the ransom, Ray Pinker gave us a supply of plain newspapers and brown wrapping paper. Both types were marked so they could later be identified in court. He also gave us pellets of dark and light paint in the event we had an opportunity to mark the kidnapper's car. 4.30 p.m., we got in touch with Dave Robart at the sound lab and made arrangements for three-way radio equipment. Chief of Detective Thad Brown contacted Army authorities, and with their cooperation, we had a helicopter standing by in the event it was needed. Teams of men from Metro Division and Homicide Detail were planted in the area around the Marchand home. And at 5.15 p.m., Frank and I, along with Marchand, drove out to his house to wait for the third contact from the kidnapper. Red 1 to Red 6. Red 1 to Red 6. Come in, please. Red 6 to Red 1. Do you read me? Yeah, Jack. You're coming in fine. Who's riding with you, over? Tilden. You got any word yet? Over. No, nothing. We'll talk to you later. Red 1 out. Well, that's it, Joe. They're all in position. Yeah, now we got the tough part. Yeah, waiting. Say, all these cars, isn't there a chance a kidnapper might see them? No, sir. They're scattered all over the area. Matter of fact, none of them can even see the house. Hope it works out. Well, everything's going with us so far. Keeps up, and we shouldn't have any trouble at all. Yeah. Is your wife all right, Mr. Marchand? Yeah, I guess so. She's upstairs. The doctor gave her something to make her sleep. Didn't want it, but he figured it was best. Yes, sir. Wasn't anything she could do to help. This whole thing's been pretty hard on her. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe when it's over, we'll take both kids and go out of town for vacation. The rest to do it good. Yes, sir. Been pretty rough on it. I'll get it. Just a minute, Mr. Marchand. Give us a chance to get that other phone. Well, you can use the one in the breakfast room through that door. All right. Now, don't pick up the receiver until you hear me say now. You got it? All right. Any way you say. Can't I answer it now? He might not wait. Just a second. Now. Hello? What? Oh, yes, Sam. No, no, no. I can't right now. No. Y- yeah. Uh-huh. Look, Sam, I'm expecting an important call. Can I talk to you tomorrow? I'm sorry about it. Yeah, sure. No, no, it's nothing else. Yeah. All right, Sam, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Sam Nicholson wanted to know if I could play golf with him in the morning. Yes, sir. Thought at first it might be the kidnapper. Yeah. Wasn't. Thought sure it was him. Well, I wish something would happen... Wait, and it'll drive me crazy. You know, if we just knew she was all right, that's all. If we just knew. Yes, sir. All right, give me a chance to get that other phone. Wait, let's see now. I know it's him this time. Now. Hello? Yeah, that's right. No, no, I was in the back of the house. What? No, the line isn't tapped. No, no, it isn't. I give you my word. Yeah, what about Grace? Is she all right? I got it. Uh-huh. No, it's here in the house now. That, that's right, $50,000. Yeah, uh, w- wait a minute, but I better get a pencil. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I know where it is. Yeah. All right, I- I'll try and find something. No, I'll find something. Yeah, all right, I'll leave as soon as I can. Uh-huh. No, I won't bring anybody, I swear yeah, will you have Grace there at... Hello. Hello. You heard it. Yeah. You better get started. You got the map? I'll get it. He said Grace was all right. You hear him say that? Yes, sir, I did. He said she was okay. Well, I hope he was telling the truth. Yes, sir, so do we. You know, it's been a long time, Sergeant, but I guess you never forget how. What's that? To pray. 
The man on the phone had instructed Mr. Marchand to attach a piece of white material to the front of his car and to drive north on Highway 101. He said that near Zuma Beach, he would indicate his presence by flashing the headlights of his own vehicle. Marchand was to pull over to the side of the road and walk halfway to the kidnapper's car. After a wait, the suspect would approach Marchand and take the money. At that time, he'd give us information on the girl's return. 6.10 p.m., all of the cars in the operation were told of the latest developments. It was decided that I would hide in the backseat of Marchand's car with a walkie-talkie and keep contact with the other officers. Frank and Captain Powers would be directly behind us in Unit 1K80. As soon as we made contact with the kidnapper, they would try to take the suspect into custody. The money was wrapped in the brown wrapping paper, and at 6.14 p.m., Marchand and I went out to his garage and got in the car. He drove out Sunset Boulevard to the Pacific Coast Highway and turned right. We drove for about 40 minutes. There was no sign of the kidnapper. Red 1 to Red 2, over. How's it going, Joe? Any sign yet? No, we're approaching Zuma Beach. Should be pretty quick now. It's Friday, there's a car up ahead. I can just make it out. Stand by, Red 2. I think we made contact. How about it, Marshal? Yeah, yeah, that's it. He just flashed his lights. Frank, we just made contact. Better take it easy. Okay, Joe, keep us posted. Can you see us? We can just barely make out your lights. We're about a half a mile behind you. Right, red one out. Now, how about it, Marshal? It's him. He flashed the lights again. Okay, do what he said. Approach slowly. Try to get as close as you can. All right. I'll do exactly what he says. Give him the money and try to find out where your daughter is. Yeah. He's driving off. What? He's leaving. He isn't going to wait. I'm going to stop him. I'll stop him. What are you doing? Hang on. We're going to hit. You all right, Marshan? Yeah, I guess so. I guess I'm all right. The door's stuck. Can you get the front one open? I think so. I'll try. I think I can get it open. All right, here. Let me through. You all right in there? Hey, is he hurt? I had to stop him. There wasn't any other way he was going to leave. All right, give me a hand with this door. Yeah, sure. There wasn't any other way he was going to leave. All right, come on. Leave me alone. Come on, get out of there. I can't. I think my leg's broken. I can't move it. Leave him tell where Gracie is. Make him tell. Leave me alone. Come on, out. Please leave me alone. I can't stand anymore. Where's Grace? Where's my daughter? When do we get him away from the I want to know where she is. If you don't make him tell me, I'll do it myself. I'll kill him if he's hurt her. I'll kill him right here. All right, come on. Give me some help. Tell him. Just leave me alone with him. That's all. Just leave me alone. That won't make it any better. Why'd you do it? Why'd you run into me? You tried to take off, didn't you? I got scared. I wanted to get out. I didn't want to go through with it. Is the girl all right? You're going to get me a doctor. You're going to do something about my leg. You've got to do something. All right, we'll take care of it. How about the girl? Is she all right? Come on, mister. Don't make it any rougher on yourself. What about the girl? I'll make it tell. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. All right, come on. Now, where's the girl? Is she all right? Answer me. Where is she? All right. All right. She's okay. I didn't touch her. I didn't hurt her at all. Where is she? Hotel downtown. She's okay. Hotel downtown. What hotel? The Piedmont. Room 506. You in this alone? Yeah. There's nobody else. All alone. All right. Yeah? Yeah. You all right? Yeah. How about the kid? Piedmont Hotel, room 506. Better get a call out on it right away. I'll take care of it, Frank. Okay, Captain. Hey, Joe, you got a bad cut in your forehead. Yeah, I must have hit something when we crashed. Yeah, we saw it from back there. We didn't know what was happening. You better call an ambulance for me. We'll take care of it. You better do it fast. I don't know how much longer I can stand it. 
It's broken. They'll never be able to fix it. Never. All right, let's go. You've got to carry me. I can't walk. Probably won't be able to walk again. You won't have to. Huh? You're not going anyplace. The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On September 16th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. Martin Francis Langer was tried and convicted of kidnapping for the purpose of obtaining ransom and received sentence as prescribed by law. On recommendation of the jury, he was sentenced to the state penitentiary at San Quentin, California, for the rest of his life. You have just heard Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action, and starring Jack Webb, a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, The Big Grab, an episode from the very last day of spring in 1955 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Most of the great Hollywood film stars we hear on the big broadcast had mastered the skill of radio acting, far different, and in some ways more demanding, than their screen craft. Few of them, though, displayed the truly superb technique of James Stewart. Listening to this episode of his Western series, The Six Shooter, we can't fail to be impressed by his phrasing, his diction, the way he uses his voice, and his great range. He has help in this one. You'll hear Gunsmoke's William Conrad as the narrator, and the whole production is directed by Jack Johnstone. You'll be impressed by his work as well, I think, because it's very different from the pace and sound of what we usually hear from Mr. Johnstone, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From NBC, it's the January 17, 1954 episode of The Six Shooter. In a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as the six-shooter here on NBC. Later this evening, listen to the NBC star Playhouse with one of your favorite stars. Here, meet the press, America's number one newsmaking program. Listen to the new Sunday at Home, and be sure to keep tuned for the dramatic story of communism in America on Last Man Out. It's a wonderful lineup of great programs, all of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as the six shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl, its handle unmarked. 
People called them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. The twilight wind carried the sound of the train toward the two figures who waited, hidden in a clump of maple trees. The sandy-haired man knotted a blue bandana at the back of his neck and pulled it over his face. He mounted his horse and gestured to his companion. The other man fitted a soiled handkerchief across his mouth and climbed into the saddle. Touch of spurs sent the horses forward. The train was crawling up a steep grade now, and the riders guided their mounts alongside the slowly moving cars. And then they lifted their boots out of the stirrups and swung themselves up onto a small platform behind the tender. A flicker of lamplight glinted on their revolvers as they opened the door to a passenger coach and stepped inside. For several minutes, the riderless horses continued to pace the clattering wheels. And then the door opened again. The two men pitched off the platform and rolled down the slope of a barren ravine. And in response to the whistle, the horses trotted up to him. All right, let's go. There just wasn't any cause. Carl was deep. And all the noise the train was making, he couldn't understand what they wanted. Yeah, I know. He couldn't understand a word. He tried to make out what they were saying, but he couldn't. And when he didn't hand it over... Well, we'll get him, Mrs. Davis. Don't you worry about that. The posse's meeting here. We'll start out tonight, and we won't be back until we get him. That won't do Carl much good. Well, at least we'll make sure they don't kill nobody else in cold blood. If only I hadn't to give him that belt. If I just hadn't to give it to him. Belt? It was my anniversary present to Carl. We were married 25 years last week. That's... That's why we was taking the train trip over to Cheyenne. And, and that's why I give him the belt. The buckle was sort of silver-like. What did that have to do with... It was the belt they wanted. But Carl didn't understand when they asked him... He'd already handed over his money and his watch, and, and then one of them noticed the belt, and he said, That buckle's silver, ain't it? Give it to me. Carl couldn't make out what he was talking about. And, and the fellow got real mad, and, and he jabbed a gun into Carl's side, and, and he pulled the trigger without even giving Carl a chance now, to... Easy now, Miss Davis. Even though Carl was dying, that outlaw took the belt off him anyway, and... It wasn't a silver buckle, Sheriff. It just looked like silver, but... But it wasn't the real thing. (laughs) 
I sure must have been sleeping sound or I'd have heard them right up. Of course, they've probably been as quiet as they could under the circumstances, but I usually wake up when I'm out in the range and somebody's prowling around my neighborhood. Well, Scar, he heard him. He let me know it. All right, what's the matter, boy? What's is there something? It still wasn't dawn, but there was enough light so that I could see the barrel of a forty-five and a firm-mouthed fellow standing over me, pointing the gun at my head. Howdy. What's your name, mister, and what are you doing out here? Well, I was sleeping. Don't get funny. We want straight answers and we want them quick. Are you two of you, huh? At least two. Oh? We're waiting, mister. My name's Ponsett. Britt Ponsett. That's right. And as for what I'm doing out here, well, this is a free range. A man's got a right to cross over it and stop off once in a while and take a snooze. If he takes a mind to it. You trying to claim you're the six-shooter? I'm not claiming anything. You asked my name, I told you. How do we know you ain't lying? How do we know that's who you are? I guess you don't. Unless you're willing to take my word for it. Let's see your gun, mister. How's that? I've heard folks tell about the gun Britt Ponsett carries. Oh, no, don't touch it. I can see it plain enough. What do you think, kid? Uh, I guess he's Ponsett, all right. Least ways that six-shooter sure fits a description. Oh? Besides, it didn't seem very likely he'd be one of the fellas we're looking for. Huh? Well, there's two of them, and he's out here all alone. Oh. Of course, they could have split up, but fellas on the run ain't have to do that. That's right. Well, uh... We're, uh, sorry if we woke you. Mm-hmm. I was getting up time anyway. Just, uh, just who is it you boys are looking for? A couple of outlaws held up the Cheyenne train last night about, uh, four miles east of Black Ledge. Oh, that's all. Yeah, there's some shooting, too. One of the passengers. We're out hunting the bandits. And my name's Kit Springer. This is my brother, Lex. Oh, yeah. Pleased to meet you. You fellas all alone? Oh, no, no. There's a posse. A little way back. Sheriff's leading him. But he thinks the robber's headed for Patch Canyon, so he's taking the posse there. We don't see it that way. You don't, huh? We figure them outlaws will try to get through Miller Pass. If they can make it, they'll be in the clear. Well, that sounds reasonable. You, uh, ain't seen nobody tonight? No, no, I can't say I have. Hmm. Reckon we figured wrong, then. They'd have to come by here on their way to the pass... This is the only trail, ain't it? Yeah, that's right. But not seeing them doesn't guarantee they weren't around. Uh, the way I was sawing wood, they could have stumbled right over my bedroll without me knowing it. Well, I guess even if our hunch was right, we couldn't find them now. Why is that? We don't know the route from here on. We ain't never been through the pass ourselves. Say, you ain't traveling in that direction by any chance. Mm, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I am. I'm riding over to the Jefferson Ranch on the south slope. Well, that's great. <laughs> Looks like we struck it lucky for once, Lex. What do you mean, Kit? Well, maybe Ponsett wouldn't mind us riding along with him, seeing as how he knows the way. And if we did run into them bandits, it'd be three of us to take care of him. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd be mighty glad to have some company, but it seems to me like you're letting yourselves in for a pretty long trip, just on a hunch. It's over a day from here through the pass, and there's no certainty the fellows you're after have even taken this trail, you know. Oh, I guess we can spare the time. There's a $1,500 reward being offered. $1,500? Oh, wow. If the posse does catch him, the money will be split 40 ways to breakfast. We won't be losing out on much. 
But if we run into them ourselves, well, you see what I mean. Sure. Uh, that sure. is, if uh, you ain't got no objections. No. No, no. Like I said, I'd welcome a little company. I'll fix us some chow, and then... Uh, we, uh, uh, we already had breakfast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how about a cup of coffee, anyway? Well, that's, uh, that's mighty kind of you, but maybe we ought to get started. In case them outlaws did get past you during the night, we wouldn't want them to pile up too much of a lead on us. We could stop for food later. You boys sure are anxious. Fifteen hundred dollars is a lot of money. Well, that's true enough. Okay, oh, I, I guess I can hold off a couple hours. Get the horses, Link. Yeah, sure. Can I uh, give you a hand with that bedroll? Mm, no, no. I can manage. Yes, sir. It was real lucky us bumping into you. How's that? I mean, you know on this trail and all. Otherwise, we'd have had to turn back. Yeah. Uh, you fellas may be off on a wild goose chase, you know. No, no, I, I just don't think so. Somehow I've got that doggondest feeling we're headed right. Well, as soon as I get scars saddled up, we'll start finding out. Easy, boy. Easy now. It wasn't much of a trail. Just a little rocky path that hugged the side of the mountain and wound around tighter and tighter like a string on a top. It was hard riding, too. Every now and then, we'd, we'd come to a horseshoe turn, and the horses had to cut so sharp they pulled the back legs in under their bellies and left us sort of hanging out over the ledge, looking down at an awful lot of air. Easy, 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 easy now. Boy, I got a hand of the Springer brothers. You know. they, they didn't complain. I'd taken this route before, so I knew what to expect. It was all new to them, after three or four of these loops, though, they, they did start dabbing their foreheads with their handkerchiefs, but neither one of them said anything about turning back. And to tell you the truth, I was doing a little sweating myself. That's a pretty steep trail, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, these horses are getting tired. Maybe we ought to rest a spell next wide space we come to. They can keep going for a while yet. Well, maybe they can. I'm getting tired myself. He's right. Get... We can't risk a stumble not up here. Okay, okay. Ah, here. Ah, it looks like we're coming to a good spot up here. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa, Scar. Oh, there, boys. I'm afraid you boys are going to be disappointed. Huh? Ah, about that $1,500. Huh? There haven't been any fresh tracks along the trail. At least, boys, I haven't seen any. I was so busy riding, I didn't have time to do much looking. Well, if somebody was just ahead of us, you'd think we'd spot a sign of them here and there. Maybe somehow we got ahead of them. Well, in that case, there wouldn't be much point you fellas going on, would there? Well, we've come this far. We might as well go the rest of the way. All right, it's up to you. <sighs> sure he is hot. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon I won't be wanting that coffee after all. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, I'm... Getting rid of this jacket. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'd say, uh... That belt there, that mighty fancy belt you're wearing there, kid. Huh? I, I don't think I've ever seen a buckle like that before. Silver, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's silver. Yeah, it's real pretty. Too bad you got it all spotted up like that. Spotted? Yeah, that... 
That uh, looks like the sort of blood you got on there. Oh. Why, I, I, uh, I cut my hand the other day. It must have been when it happened. I, I didn't realize I'd smeared up my belt, though. Doggone it. Probably have a heck of a time getting the leather clean again. Yeah. Yeah, blood stains are apt to be sort of permanent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame. Nice little belt on here. Of the Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. As soon as the horses were rested, we started off again. But the higher we got, the harder it was for the animals to keep moving. The air was thinner now. You notice it every time you took in a gulp. And the trail seemed even fainter than before. Oh, a couple of times we missed it completely and just went off on a tangent. And then we had to swing around and try to pick up where we'd gone wrong. I'll never catch up with him at this rate. No, I wouldn't worry about it, Kit. What do you mean? I still haven't seen any fresh tracks. Looks to me like nobody's been through here since last rain. If you'd keep your eyes on the trail instead of looking for horseshoe marks, we might not get lost so often. Easy, kid. I told you boys you were letting yourselves in for something. Yeah, yeah, you told us. Well, come on, come on. Let's see if we can make up some time. I sure couldn't help notice that the longer we rode, the less friendly Kit Springer got. I sort of put it down to the fact that he must have been sort of worn out. We weren't taking any pleasure, John. That was for sure. I couldn't blame him for being a little down from now. But there was one thing that sort of troubled me about this fellow. Something he said kept pecking at the back of my brain. Oh, I, uh, I cut my hand the other day. Uh, that, that must have been when it happened. I, I didn't realize I'd smeared my belt. I shifted around and glanced back over my shoulder. Kit had one hand on the saddle horn and the other was gripping the reins. The cut must have been all healed up by now. At least he didn't seem to have any trouble with it. A cut deep enough to spot his belt that way. It must have taken several days to get well. Tony had never noticed the blood on his belt before I mentioned it to him. Well, one thing was certain. Kit Springer sure couldn't be much of a dude. The sun finally went down and we made camp for the night. We managed to find a pretty good-sized level spot right above the trail. Lex had built a fire, and I cooked up a mess of beans and some pan bread. Kit didn't seem to be very hungry, though. Moon ought to be coming up pretty soon. Oh, another hour or so. Think it'll give off much light? Oh, some, I guess. Not enough to see by, huh? To see what? Well, you said we were almost through the pass, didn't you? Oh, we've got a couple, three more miles. Why do we have to stop here, then? The horses oh, could feel no, their way. Just, just simmer down, Kit. Just simmer down. It's plain enough we're not going to run into those fellows you're after. They're e- either out of the pass now, or what's more likely than ever took this trail in the first place. That posse's probably captured them hours ago. Uh, more coffee, Lex? Yeah, thanks. Kit? No, no, no. I've had enough. Um, there's a town on the other side of the pass, ain't there? Yeah, yeah, English Creek. 
Just a little bird. Well, spending the night there would be a whole lot better than sitting out here. We could get a bath and a shave, change of clothing. Uh, you wouldn't want to risk your neck on the trail just for a bath, would you? No, I guess not. But I ain't very comfortable wearing the same breeches and shirt day after day. That's so. I didn't figure you for the particular type. Well, you figured wrong, Mr. Fawcett. Kit's a real fancy Dan. Oh, that's so. Yeah, you ought to see him on Saturday night when he starts off for town. Looks like a real riverboat gambler. That's that's what he looks like. Well, there's nothing the matter with a man just because he tries to keep himself presentable, is there? No. No, nothing at all. Well, reckon we might as well turn in. All right, you fellas go ahead. I'll back the fire. You know, it's uh, it's funny you never used this trail before. What's so funny about it? Well, seeing as how you live in Black Ledge. We never said we live there. No. No, I guess you didn't. Come to think of it. But, well, since you were part of Sheriff's Posse, I sort of jumped at the conclusion. We were just passing through on our way to Beaver Junction. We heard about the train robbery. Seemed like the sheriff needed all the help he could get, so we volunteered. Not to mention the reward, of course. Not to mention the reward. Hey, by the way, who is the sheriff of Black Ledge now? What difference does it make? Well, I'm just curious, that's all. No, I, uh, I don't remember his name. It wasn't time for any formal introductions. Folks just call him sheriff. Oh, yeah, I see. Big fella, is he? With a mustache? Look, Ponsett, you were the one who was so all fired determined on us stopping for some shut-eye. So how about settling down? Sure. Sure. Night. Night. I rolled up my blanket and I turned my face toward the fire. And I... As far as I could tell, the Springer boys hadn't been lying to me. A man could join up with a posse and not find out the sheriff's name. And I guess a man could ride himself half to death on the off chance of earning him $1,500 reward if he had a mind to do it. Of course, it hadn't worked out. Kit's hunch on the train robbers uh, were using this pass. It just hadn't worked out. But I'd played plenty of wild hunches myself. So I... About then, I dropped off to sleep. The last thing I remember is here in my mind, say, maybe you're wrong, Ponsett. Maybe those outlaws are using the pass after all. It just kept echoing through my head. Maybe you're wrong, Ponsett. Well, must have been six, seven hours later when I... At first, I, I wasn't sure what it was that woke me up. One of the horses, maybe. Ah. Oh, I started to drift off again. Lex. Lex. Shh, shh. What's the matter? It's almost done. we got to start moving. What about Ponce? Are you awake? I don't think so. Brett. Brett. I don't know what it was that kept me from answering back. But I just lay there, hardly breathing, not moving... Not even opening my eyes. Guess he's still asleep. Yeah. We ain't gonna need him the rest of the way, Lex. That's what I figured. Trouble is, he knows our names, what we look like. 
Sooner or later, you'd put two and two together. You didn't have to tell him who we was. I knew it would make no difference one way or the other. You. You're going to shoot him, kid? Nope. You are. Me? Yeah. I'm already wanted for a couple of killings, Lex. But they're only after you for robbery. Even though you're my brother, if the going got too rough someday, you might want to ease out of the partnership. You know better than that, kid. I'll know it for sure. After you kill Ponset. Well? Okay, kid. Whatever you say. I'll get the horses. Hurry it up. I heard Kit move off across the clearing. For a minute, that's all I heard. Then Lex started moving, too. I lifted my eyelids just a hair, and I saw him through the lashes. He pulled his revolver out of the holster. My gun belt was lying right beside me, and I inched my left hand toward it real slow so he wouldn't notice. I felt my fingers slide across a couple of stones, but the gun was still a little space beyond. I hadn't touched it yet. Alex was standing right over me now. I wasn't going to have much more time. If I didn't get a grip on that gun the next second or two, it... I spun over as he fired, but the bullet had seared my shoulder and dug into my chest. My right hand jerked up and I let fire. First I thought I'd missed him. I saw his fingers start to squeeze off another shot, but he, he never finished pulling the trigger. His whole body was shaking like an aspen tree, and he just tilted forward. I slid out of the way as he fell. I, I hadn't had time to feel the pain before now, but... It started tearing through me so bad I almost let out a yell. One shot ought to have been enough to... Lex! Just hold it there, Kit. Rick, what? Seems you were right about the train bandits using this trail to... 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 The words wouldn't come out. And everything started blurring in front of my eyes and I could barely keep from dropping my gun. It was getting light now. Kit could see how bad I was shot. He whipped his revolver up from his side. The sound kind of jerked me back to my senses, and I managed to pull the trigger. I knew my aim wouldn't be so good, but it was good enough to send Kit diving back of a rock for cover. And there was a tree stump not, not more than a couple of feet away, and I managed to roll myself behind it. I know you're hurt, Ponset. You can't hold out much longer. I sure wasn't in any way to argue with him. If I... If I could just get off a couple of more shots, maybe... Maybe he'd think twice before it, but... I didn't have enough strength to... What's that? That... That couldn't be kept fired. I pushed my chin up to the edge of the stump. What is... Are there horses coming up the trail from the same direction we'd come? And for a minute, I couldn't think who. But, and then I remembered the posse. They'd, they'd been following us all the time. Well, that's why Kit was so anxious to stay on the move. Well, that's the sheriff, Springer. I wouldn't plan on going much further. I could see him. I knew he was calling his horse. There was only one way back trail. He had to ride past me in the open. I propped myself up against the side of his stump, and I shifted my gun to my left hand, and for a minute I thought the trigger was stuck, and then I... Oh. 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 
coming, too, Sheriff. Yeah, good, good. Uh, How you feeling, Brad? What? Doc? Well, Doc Easton, are you? Yeah. What the Sam hell are you doing out here? <laughs> well, there's no law saying a doctor can't go along with a posse, is there? No, no. Well, for my sake, it's a good thing you did. Well, what about... What about Kit Springer? Did you... Did you catch up with him, Sheriff? You saved us the trouble, Brett. Well, I, I couldn't have done that. He must have got away. That last shot of mine, that was a mile wide. Well, maybe you didn't exactly hit him, but you sure scared the daylights out of his horse. What? Yeah, we saw the whole thing from down below. Springer was just turning onto the trail when you fired. His horse reared and started slipping over the edge. Springer tried to jump clear, but he just couldn't seem to tear himself loose from that saddle. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, Brett. When we finally found him, his body was still fastened to that saddle. Yeah. Yeah. The belt he was wearing had got caught onto the horn somehow. That must have been what drug him along when his horse fell. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I never heard of a man's belt hooking onto a saddle horn before. Neither did I. But that's what happened, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, how about it, Brett? You going to be able to ride on into English Creek after I finish bandaging you up? Yeah, do my best, Doc. I'll sure do my best. Six Shooter is a transcribed NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt and is written by him. Mr. Stewart may soon be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Eleanor Audley, Forrest Lewis, Bill Conrad, Joel Cranston, and Frank Gerstle. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam. And the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. This is Hal Gibney speaking. The Sixth Shooter, starring James Stewart from the winter of 1954 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Usually, when we hear the actor J. Carol Nash, it's in a role as an Italian or a native Spanish speaker or some other part with a heavy accent. Seldom as an Irishman, which is strange considering that Mr. Nash's father had immigrated from County Limerick. Well, tonight we get to hear Mr. Nash in a non-ethnic role and as part of a distinguished ensemble that includes Jim Backus, Howard Duff, and Wally Mayer, about whom more later. There's a great use of sound in this drama, not surprising for a production by the masterful William Spear. He was the producer and director of this August 1st, 1946 episode called Commuter's Ticket from the CBS series Suspense. Now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world, Roma Wines present Suspense. 
Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. J. Carol Nash as star of Commuter's Ticket, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live to your happiness in entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Yes, right now, a glass full would be very pleasant, as Roma Wines bring you J. Carol Nash in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! Ever ride a commuting train? If you have, you probably don't think anything of it. Not if you're one of the regulars. Commuters are just people coming from one place and on their way to going someplace else. What happens in between doesn't mean a thing. They don't remember it afterwards. They don't see the scenery. They look right at faces beside them and don't see them. I know. I used to ride the 815 into the city to work every morning and the 545 home in the evenings. Yeah, I used to ride the train. Oh, uh, could I bother you for a match? What? Oh, man. Yeah, left mine at the office. <clears throat> hmm? Uh, where I work, Consolidated Press. The wire service, you know. Don't say. Oh, I'm not one of the reporters. Uh, here's a book of matches, Keaton. Thanks. Now, I repair teletype machines. You know, the machines that print the news when it comes in and relay it out to the newspapers all over the country. Don't say. <laughs> Funny trades people get in, huh? Now, me, I was a speed typist. Fellow on my shift was a telephone man. Both wind up in the same place, repairing teletype printers. It's a whole profession, you know. Most people don't know it exists. But there you are. They break down just like any other machine. Oh, uh, what's your line? Look, I'm sorry. These rides are the only time I have to go over my reports. Oh, sure, sure. I didn't mean to put in. I just thought maybe I'd seen you in the Laurel Creek station. No, not my station. I see a lot of people waiting for the train there, but, but I never get to know them. Oh, uh, my name's Bert Gavin. It's all right. Keep the matches. I got another book. You ride right along beside the same people, or the same kind of people anyway. For weeks, months, years. Nobody knows you're there. The same conductors see you every day, and still they ask you what's your station. I got so I took it for granted, like any other commuter. Then I got to thinking about it again. Especially on the down peninsula runs. Going home to that house. That house that didn't have any love in it anymore. I said I lived in Laurel Creek. Well, that was my station. Only where I lived was on the wrong side of the tracks. The house was so close to the tracks, we couldn't have a backyard for the rails. Every time a train would go by, it would shake the whole house. The walls would shake, the windows would rattle, the ground would shake under the foundations. It was like living on the edge of a volcano. As I walked into the house that night, the Bayside Limited was just coming through. Alva! Hey, Alva! Who is it? That you, Bert? What are you doing home? Did you lose your job? Well, it gets past. I can't hear you. What? What's that you say? Oh, I said shut up. What's the big idea coming home like this? Why'd you let me know? I finished early. We're going to get overtime. You're losing overtime. Well, maybe I want to have dinner with my loving wife for a change. Well, you won't. There's nothing in the house. Well, couldn't we rustle up some scrambled eggs or something? I told you there's nothing in the house. Well, what were you going to eat? I was going out, if you want to know. Who with? Well, it's none of your business. It's Alf Gorman, isn't it? 
You've been seeing him again, haven't you? Well, what if I have? I don't want you to see him. You're my wife. Pity you didn't think of that when you moved me out here to the sticks. Well, your boyfriends don't seem to have any trouble locating you. You rented a house on the railroad tracks deliberately just to punish me. Well, you don't have to stay in it. No, I don't, but you do. And every time that train goes by in the night, I like it. You don't sleep so good, do you, Bert? The trains get on your nerves, too, don't they? I guess that's something you didn't figure on. Uh, hey, maybe I figured on more than you think. What do you say that for? And what are you simpering about? What's the matter, Alva? You sound like you're scared of me. Of you? Oh, don't make me laugh. And don't make a scene when Alf comes by to pick me up. You know what happened the last time. But it won't happen again. Laugh's on me, isn't it? I moved you to the country to keep you away from the juke joint so he drives out here to see you. The country. You call this the country. A shack on the railroad tracks. You bring me here. <laughs> you must be crazy to think anybody could turn over a new leaf in a yeah. place like this. Maybe I am crazy, but not the way you think. Well, there you go again, getting that silly look on your face. What time did you say Alf was coming to pick you up? Seven o'clock. That's fine. That's perfect. I just have time to catch the 7.15 back in the town and earn that overtime. Well, what are you waiting for? It's about time for the 6.45 to pass by, isn't it? Yeah. Do stay and enjoy it, Bert, dear. Honey, you don't know how much I'm going to enjoy this. Ah, there it is. Here it comes. Well, it's a minute early this evening. Bert... What's the matter with you? What do you want with that poker? What do you think I came home early tonight for? Give you three guesses. Right. Nobody saw me leave the office. The watchman was asleep. He'll still be asleep when I get back. As far as the police will know, I never left there. I was there all night fixing the printers. Earning my overtime. Right, don't do it. You'll never get away with it. Everybody saw you coming out in the train. It'll be the same going back. You can't help being seen. So many people on those trains. What you don't know, honey. What you don't know. I'll scream. I'll scream so loud the neighbors will hear. Nobody's going to hear anything except this train. Here, there's a big baby now. A nice long train. Long and loud. Go ahead. Scream your head off. Bert, put that down. You don't know what you're doing, Bert. Get away from me. Oh, Bert, please, please listen. Down, Bert. Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you J. Carol Nash in Commuter's Ticket, a radio play by Roy Grandy and Robert Tallman. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage J. Carol Nash as Bert Gavin in Commuter's Ticket. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. The train was gone and so was that awful feeling inside. I just stood there looking down where I'd knocked her. In the quiet, there wasn't any reason for what I'd done. I was sorry, kind of. I didn't want her dead now, but I had to follow it through. I had to work fast. Alf was coming for it at seven. He'd find her body. Maybe they'd try to hang it on him. <laughs> that was a laugh. It was just a small noise when I picked up the poker, but even that scared me. I had to wipe it off, though. Those small sounds a man makes when he's alone around the house. I heard every step I took. 
I'd have given anything for another train to break up the silence. But there wouldn't be another train till the one I had to get on. I had to work fast if I was going to catch it. I opened a broom closet and got out a stepladder. I set the ladder up and climbed to the top of it, feeling dizzy. What I wanted was in a pewter mug on top of the sideboard. I got it in a hurry and climbed down. It was over 2,000 bucks in cash. I'd been saving it for a long time. I needed it now. I might not be coming back to this house. I meant to put a ladder away. And straight out of there before Alf put in his appearance. The buzzer stopped me cold. It was him, all right. I could see his shadow on the frosted glass of the front door. In a minute, he tried the door. I didn't know whether it was locked or not. I didn't wait to see. I hit out the back way. The door that opened only a couple of feet from the railroad tracks. The three seconds spot, I was scrambling up over that great stake fence, out onto the tracks, lurching over the railroad ties. Where was the plan, that neat plan, so nobody would see me? I had a way mapped out, but, but that way was out the front door. Now everybody in all the houses along the tracks could see me. Maybe not, though. People there don't look out through those dirty windows any oftener than they have to. At the station, I huddled back on a bench in the darkest corner and waited. I got on with the others, lost in the crowd. I walked through just like all the commuters. Took the first good empty seat I found. A whole seat to myself. Uh, mind if I sit here? What? Oh, no, no. I just thought maybe your wife... Wife? Well, that may be that you were holding this seat for somebody. Oh, no, no. No, it's okay. Oh, thanks. Well, say, this suits me. You know, I don't like it when there isn't somebody to talk to. <laughs> yes, sir, my name's Elmer Russell. Uh, what's yours? Uh, you must not ride on the trains very much. You guessed it. From what I hear, people don't meet up with each other very much, not on these commuting trains. I only use them since I'm working nights. I used to drive in. Uh, what was your name now? Hey, hey, what'd you do to your hand? My, my, my hand what? Well, you must have cut yourself. Look, it's all covered. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, excuse me. Just saw a friend of mine going to the car ahead. I wanted to see him on a matter of... I rushed on out of the car, my heart pounding. I went in and washed my hands. Out of all the passions on that train, I had to get beside somebody who didn't have the commuter's habit. And blood on my hands. Well, what was the difference? Nobody ever questioned him about me. train lurch as I started down the aisle of the next smoker. Hey, hey, watch it. What's the big idea? I'm sorry. <laughs> train give a lurch. Sorry. Well, you don't have to cry about it. Just watch it. Yeah. Uh, hey, wait. What? Uh, help me pick up these dominoes. Oh, go on. Chase yourself. Hey, come back here. What's the big idea? Gee, I should have helped him pick them up. He'd remember. He'd remember that my being rude. Maybe not, though. Commuters, commuters are used to rudeness. I hurried down to the next car. I shut the door behind me and leaned back against it, feeling weak and dizzy. People near me looked up and stared at me. I must have looked pretty sick, judging the way I felt. I grabbed the first vacant seat and fell into it. Well, look what just dropped down from the sky. Hey, can't keep us from having that fork, can they? Well, what's your limit, friend? Ten percent a point? Now, don't tell us you don't play bridge. <laughs> You'll be the first commuter I ever met on this run that didn't play bridge, huh? <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. I play a little. I... I'm not very good, though. Uh, but I'll be glad to play. Good, good. You keep score, Jack. Sure. Uh, draw for the deal. Well, Ace of Spades. Looks like you're a lucky night, fella. Yeah. Uh, what's your name, by the way? A uh, name? Yeah, for the score pad. Oh, yeah, 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 for the score pad. Don't hold up the game, Jack. Just write down Mr. X. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Easy to remember. I was... Uh, uh, my, my name's Sam. Sam Cartwright. Oh, okay, Sam. All right, let's see. Now, who dealt? 
I played cards. What I picked up and laid down, then I can't remember. I could hardly see the spots on them. I was thinking of Alva's face, lying there in that miserable house by the tracks where I'd left her. Then it happened. The one they called Jack had just said, Your play, Sam. Then it happened. It was only the train going through the tunnel, but it brought it all back. A scream and the train roaring by, the whole house shaking. When I heard that squeal, my arms jerked up. What all I did, I don't know. Well, what's the matter, Sam? Oh, nothing. I well, play. We won't finish your rubber at this rate. Play, play. Yeah, yeah. I. Oh, I'm sorry, Donna. I thought there was another trump out. Sorry, your race takes it, chum. Yeah, I thought you said you didn't play much, Sam. Never seen such luck. Huh. Your deal, Whitney. Excuse me, Jeff. Got all your tickets? Oh. Yeah. Guess my coat was over the seat check. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, wait, wait, conductor. Yeah? You didn't get Sam's ticket. Yeah, Sam's too lucky. Can't let him get away with a free ride. I, uh, <laughs> I was back in the other car. Where conductor. was that? Well, to tell the truth, I, I forget whether I paid or not. I'll buy a ticket, though, just to be sure. Sorry to bother you. Here, I'll just take some change out of my wallet. Hey, and... there's your regular monthly commuter's ticket, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> yes, so it is. <laughs> I thought I left it home. <laughs> That's all right, Mr. Gavin. Gavin? I thought you said your name was Cartwright. I, uh... Oh, oh this is my brother-in-law's ticket. Oh, I see. Come on, come on, you guys. Pick up your car. Yeah. I pass. No bid. Let's see. Buy me. Never seen a rotten hand. Uh, me either. But Sam's gonna bid, though. Sam doesn't get rotten hands. Sam, how about it? Oh, oh, no. No. Hey, what's the matter with you, anyway? You look sick. What's the matter with you? Oh, I'm all right. Leave me alone, will you? Well, if you're going to bed, go on in bed. All right, all right. Just, just wait till the train gets by. The, the noise, I can't concentrate. It wasn't a passing train, not this time. With the cards in my hand, I saw them all at once. It was a hand Culbertson might have written a book about. It was more than just a grand slam. I had every face card in the deck. But I wasn't going to be noticed on that train. I didn't even want to be remembered, no. And here I had a seven-note trump hand. Well, come on. Bid, man. Bid. Uh, yeah, all right. Sure. Uh, say, say I, I guess we better have a redeal. Where are the good cards? Somebody's got to have them. Say, the, the train's getting crowded. Sure is, mister. Oh, I'm sorry, madam. Here, here take my seat. Well, thank you, dearie. What's the idea? Oh, cards all over the place. Hey, hey, where are you going? Sorry, next hey. is my station. So long. Well, I got out of show on that hand. But there was that abrupt departure to remember, and I'd given my seat to a woman. You don't see people giving seats to ladies very often these days. And the next car I stopped on the island stood wedged in tight by the crowd. I was shaking, so it must have attracted attention. Then a conductor came through. Ticket! Ticket! Didn't get your ticket. Well, you, you punched my ticket. It was in the other car. I was playing cards, remember? Remember? Let me think now. I... No, no, it's all right. Here, here. I, I had my commuter's ticket. You can punch it again. Oh, here, it must, be in my... it must be in my other pocket. Gee, where'd I put it? I... Well, I couldn't have lost it. Well, never mind this time. But after this, take your seat check along when you move from car to car. Makes a lot of trouble for us when you don't. Then then you do remember? Well, never mind about that. Tell me, do you remember punching my ticket? 
Do you remember me? Uh, can't say as I do. One face gets to be just like another when you work the train so long. I'll just take your word for it. I breathe easier from then on. If that conductor didn't take any notice of me, then nobody would. Once I stopped jittering, people stopped staring at me. Or, or maybe I just imagined they were staring at me. Nobody watching for me at the station at San Francisco. I lost myself in the crowd and was back at the building where I worked before 8 o'clock. The watchman was asleep the way I figured he'd be. The way I'd planned it. I'd gone into the locker room before I left there and put a slug of sleeping medicine into his coffee thermos that it'll put a horse to sleep. Now, there was no danger of his waking up. But I tiptoed past him just to make sure. I went into the big room where the printers were. They were running just like I left them. No paper snag, no carriages stuck. None of the operators had called in. If they had, I could just say I'd gone out for a sandwich. I guess I knew how to fix teletypes, all right. To keep them running or to stop them running. I fixed a couple of those so nobody could say they hadn't broken down. Of course, the papers had kicked plenty about losing all that news. My office had kicked plenty, yeah. Kicked me right into the proof of where I'd been all night. It was daylight before I left. On the way out, I tripped over the night watchman. I wanted him to see me leave, but he didn't stir. I shook him a couple of times, but, but he didn't wake up. So I stamped my card myself and went on my way. He'd give the right testimony in any case. He wouldn't dare admit he'd been asleep on the job. Well, I bought a newspaper and started for the depot, feeling pretty good. There wasn't anything in the paper about what I'd done to Alva. I was sure there wouldn't be. I had one eye on the city news ticker all night. Maybe Alf didn't go in. Maybe they hadn't found a body yet. That's what I kept telling myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I kept telling myself. Uh, Mr. Gavin? Uh, yeah, I'm Bert Gavin. My name's Daniels. Detective Inspector Daniels. I'd, uh, like to ask you a few questions. Oh, why, certainly, Inspector. What is it? Well, first, I think you'd better give an account of your movements last evening and last night. Oh, well, that's easy enough. I, I spent the whole night at Consolidated News where I work. A couple of machines broke down and I had to stay there and repair them. Fixing the teletype printers, that's my job. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. You're, uh, under arrest, Mr. Gavin, huh? on suspicion of murder. Oh, now, 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 wait a minute. You're making a big mistake, Mr. Inspector. I, I don't know what happened here, but I've been there the whole night, and I can prove it. I've got my time card and the night watchman as a witness. Well, you picked a mighty poor witness, Mr. Gavin. Oh, well, what do you mean? That night watchman's dead, and you know it because you killed him, didn't you, Gavin? Oh, now, listen. I, I don't get it. I, I told you the truth. He was alive at 6 o'clock this morning. He stamped my time card. I think we'd better go somewhere private where we can take down your statement. Okay, okay, but... Listen, Inspector, you're on the wrong track. Honestly, uh, why did I take such pains to prove I was there last night if I was a guilty party? Well, I suppose you figured there's no use lying about what we can prove. Your story had to check with your wives. My, my, my wife's? Yeah. Oh, we had a little trouble locating her, but she gave us a statement. What, what, where'd you locate her? In the hospital. She had a bad accident, fell off a stepladder and cracked her head on an andiron. Oh, is, is she all right? Oh, sure, sure. Luckily, a friend dropped in just after it happened, and they got her to the hospital in time. Well, listen, listen, you've got to take me there. I've got to see her right away. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. After we get your statement and the money. What money? Why, the money you killed the watchman for. A little over 2,000 bucks, wasn't it? See, the way we got it figured, you put sleeping stuff in his coffee and then went after the safe. He came to and surprised you, so you let him have it with a wrench. Being dopey and an old guy, it was just too much for his heart. Uh-huh. <laughs> We got you cold, Gavin. Your prints are all over that wrench. Nice, fresh prints. Oh, listen, you got me all wrong. I... What time did it happen? 
Oh, around 7.30, the doctor figures. Then I can prove I didn't do it. I was home at a quarter of seven, and I took the 7.15 back to town. My wife will tell you that. Will she? The way she told it to us, you weren't home at any time. And if I'm any judge of people, she'll stick to that story. But I can prove I was on that train. I talked to people. I lost my commuter's ticket. The conductor will remember me. Yeah. Most of those people will be on the train again tonight. They'll remember. I had a 7-0 Trump hand at bridge. Oh, they'll remember. <laughs> Must be somebody who'll remember me. Oh, that's all right. We'll take enough trips to strike an average. Oh, here, here, this woman. <laughs> Hello, do you, do you remember me? I beg your pardon? Two nights ago on this car. Remember, I gave you a seat. Oh, how considerate. Do you remember me? Uh, let me think, dearie. Try to place this face, lady. Mm, no, I really couldn't, dearie, but I just wish somebody'd give me a seat now. And I've been afraid she'd remember me. While we walked through all the cars, I couldn't find any of the other witnesses, not even the conductor. But Daniels was understanding. He let me try the 715 with him the next night. I played bridge with you. I gave you my name as, as Sam, Sam Cartwright. No, I'm afraid I don't place you. But, but I was winning all the time. I even had a 7-0 Trump hand. Oh, I haven't seen any hands like that in years. You must have mistaken us for somebody else. Oh, here, here. At last. Uh, you remember me. Well, if you don't mind, I have this reading that I... Uh... But we, we met the other night, five nights ago it was. Is that so? Yeah, I remember. You said you weren't a regular commuter, so I knew you were the one person who wouldn't forget me. R remember I cut my hand. Five nights ago. Well, I've been riding the trains all the time since then. Uh, I'm afraid one face is getting to be much like another. <laughs> Well, that does it, Gavin. Come clean now. But I did take the 715 that night. I'm telling the truth. There. There, that's the conductor. Out huh? on the platform. Look. I found the conductor. Why bother, Gavin? Conductor. Hmm? Do you remember seeing me on this one a week ago? Well, I'm afraid one face is pretty much oh, like... Oh, I know, but, but I lost my commuter ticket. We talked about it. Lost the commuter ticket? Uh, what's the name? Wait, Gavin. Can't you remember me? No, but I might have some tickets here. I find a few strays once in a while. Oh, that's it. That's my ticket. Let me see that. My ticket. There's my name on it, see? You found this on the 715? Well, mister, couldn't say what run it was. They shuttle the cars around, you know. <laughs> that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No, thanks, conductor. That's all I needed. They had me called... For a murder I didn't commit. That was a funny part of it. Daniels was the right guy, though. He, he gave me one last chance to establish my alibi. At the hospital, Alva refused to see me, but Daniels agreed to see her himself and question her about my story, that I was home at the time of the murder. I waited in the corridor outside Alva's room. He was in there almost an hour. Well, Gavin... Did you get anywhere? Did she tell you anything? Yeah. Yeah, she told me plenty. She told you I was home? I couldn't have murdered the watchman? She signed a detailed statement to that effect. Then so my alibi's good. Oh, sure, I couldn't have killed the watchman. Oh, your alibi for the watchman will stick all right, Gavin. But, uh, 
I'm afraid we'll still have to hold you for murder. You see, your wife just made a new statement telling us what actually happened when you came home. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. We had a quarrel. I'm sorry. Matter of fact, I I should have told you. And just after she signed the statement, she passed away. Dead? She's dead? Are you sure? Oh, there's no doubt about it, Gavin. Well, it's getting late. I gotta check in. You were ready to go? Yeah? Yeah. You think they'll they'll give me an inside cell? Mm, I can get you one if you want it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I'd like that. Nice and quiet. Away from the train. Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Before we hear again from J. Carroll Nash, the star of Commuter's Ticket, tonight's suspense play, this is Ken Niles with a Hollywood party idea for the ladies. When it's your turn to entertain these hot, sultry afternoons, treat your guests to the thirst-quenching refreshment of Roma Wine Lemonade. So light, so ripe, so easy to serve. Roma Wine Lemonade, first acclaimed by smart Hollywood hostesses, is now popular with women everywhere. The thirst choice among cold, tall refreshers. And Roma Wine Lemonade is so simple to prepare. Just place ice and the juice of half a lemon in a tall glass, pour three-quarters full with Roma California Burgundy or any other Roma wine type you prefer, add water and sweeten to taste. Quick as a wink, Roma Wine Lemonade is ready with cold, satisfying, low-cost refreshment for all. And because Roma wine is selected for you from the world's greatest wine reserves, refreshers made with Roma are better tasting naturally. So insist on Roma, R-O-M-A, Roma wine, largest selling wine in all history. Now, this is J. Carroll Nash. Uh, Mr. Spear has been telling me about next Thursday's suspense show, and uh, I must say he has whetted my appetite for it tremendously. It'll present an all-star cast of Hollywood's finest radio actors headed by Wally Mayer in a play which, according to Mr. Spear, contains some of the most powerful ingredients of distilled suspense that he has encountered since the now internationally famous Sorry, Wrong Number. It concerns the converging of death upon a helpless man and the unknowing conspiracy of people all over the city whom he has never even met to bury him alive. So let's all be sure and listen. Thank you. J. Carol Nash appeared through courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor musical Holiday in Mexico. Next Thursday, same time, Roma Wines will bring you Wally Mayer and an all-star cast of Hollywood's finest radio actors in Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. Suspense is broadcast from coast to coast and to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
From exactly 75 years ago tonight, the story called Commuter's Ticket from the series Suspense. By the way, that promo for next week's episode is one we're going to play in two weeks when we're featuring the virtuoso radio actor Wally Mayer with a visit from a special guest, too. That'll be here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Even if you're too young to have heard radio dramas back in the day, and your only experiences of old-time radio are your weekly visits with us here on the big broadcast, you can't fail to be impressed by the cast of the Whistler episode we're about to hear. It features Virginia Gregg, whom you've heard on dozens of shows, including as Dick Powell's girlfriend on Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Howard McNear, Doc on Gunsmoke, among many other roles, Frank Lovejoy, the reporter Randy Stone on Nightbeat, and Jack Webb, do I even need to say it, Sergeant Joe Friday on Dragnet. He appeared as a decidedly different kind of detective, along with this distinguished acting ensemble, on June 12, 1949, in an episode called Perfect Alibi, from the CBS series The Whistler. That whistle is your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. I am the Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. And Signal Gasoline is tops, too, tops in quality. It takes extra quality, you know, to give you extra mileage. And Signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. So look for the Signal circle sign in yellow and black that identifies independently operated Signal stations from Canada to Mexico. And now the Whistler's strange story. Perfect Alibi. Entering the Golden Sparrow, a cozy little cocktail lounge near the far end of Beverly Boulevard, private investigator Johnny Seltzer, 30, handsome, off-duty at the moment, found business at a standstill. He went straight to the bar and ordered a drink. Scotch and water. I'll mix it. Right. Old Masters, if you have it. Old Masters it is. Good. 
Johnny carried his drink to the nearest empty table and sat down to think. Self-centered, cynical, and in his own estimation, a smooth operator. Many things were on his mind, especially Johnny Seltzer himself. Things hadn't been going too well for him. Tom Silver, founder of the Silver Detective Agency, had threatened him with dismissal unless he changed his ways, ceased gambling, and gave closer attention to his duties. Staring moodily at the voluptuous paintings lining the walls, Johnny suddenly pushed back his chair and walked over to the jukebox at the end of the bar and slid a nickel into the slot. Returning to his table, he sat back to finish his drink, listened to the music, and sympathized with himself. Ordinarily, Johnny would have welcomed the voice which abruptly shattered his mood. A low, sibilant voice that seemed to come from nowhere. I like music, too. Does that make us pals? <laughs> Don't seem very happy. I was. Most men would be glad to see me. Yeah, well, I'm different. I'm sure you are. That's why I came over. That was my wife's favorite line. Maybe that's why it didn't register. Yeah, it could be. You didn't like her much, huh? I didn't. Divorce? I didn't kill her. Say, what are you, anyway, an investigator for the World Psychology Foundation? I'm surprised you haven't asked me why I got married in the first place. Oh, I figured that out already. Don't. And it shows on you, too. What? Your merger with the bankroll behind that mink and ice you're modeling there. No merger. Present. From a relative. That's quite a coincidence, isn't it? What is? Two people who like money meeting up in a place like Hollywood. And now that we know all about each other, let's call it a day, huh? Why? Why not? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because it's still early. Maybe because it's raining outside. That's not good enough. I like to walk in the rain. Nice if you'd invite yourself over. Maybe I'll run into you again sometime. Wait a second. Yeah? Am I that hard to take? How would I know? You might find out. I'm not curious. Can I take your water? No, thanks. I'm taking a powder. Waiter, two scotches and water. We'll mix them. I said I was leaving. Don't be like that, Johnny. Hmm? What was that name you called me? You're Johnny Self at Private Eye, aren't you? Okay. You know who I am. I figured that pickup pitch was a phony. Well, like you said, I'm Johnny Seltzer. And I'm Alice Collins. Who's she? She's the niece of Charles Collins. Charles Collins? Not the number one boy of lumber. <laughs> That's what it says in the papers. I never saw him until two years ago. He wrote and asked me how I'd like to live out here, and I said I'd like it. So here I am. Mm-hmm. Eastern talent? I was born and raised in Springfield. Springfield, Missouri. Who sent you to me? Nobody. I saw you out at Dilbo's one night last week. I asked a croupier who you were. I see. The lady gambles, loses. Now she wants me to get her money back, right? Wrong. No, I don't think so. What did you do? Follow me here from the office? Mm-hmm. Am I forward? Oh, just say easy to approach, like a department store. Uh, pardon me. Okay, waiter. Let's have the check. Huh? Just put it on my bill, will you please? Certainly, Miss Collins. Take it out of this. Keep the change. Thank you. Well, that was nice of you, Johnny. Cigarette? Thanks. Hmm. Now, look, Springfield, you got an angle or you wouldn't be talking to me. What is it? You ought to get over that inferiority complex. There's no angle. I just thought you'd be a nice guy to know. Later on, after I know you better, 
I might be able to throw a little business your way. Detective business? Terrific detective business. Maybe as much as $50,000. Well, that's nice money. It's too bad I work on a straight salary. The Tom Silver Detective Agency makes the deal. Not this one. This would be a special deal, Johnny. $50,000 just for you. Interesting? Uh Uh-uh. If it was legit, you wouldn't be putting out that kind of dough. You're jumping to conclusions, aren't you? Maybe. But if I'm wrong, you can always take it up with the agency. You know where the office is. Okay, Johnny. But if you ever change your mind and want to talk it over, call me up. I will. So long, Springfield. You can get me almost any afternoon at Melrose. Five, four, three, two, one. That's easy to remember, Johnny. All you have to do is count five. Backwards. When you leave the Golden Sparrow, you're sure you've seen the last of Alice Collins, aren't you, Johnny? Yet a few days later, you're not so sure. Your boss, Mr. Silver, has you on the carpet again, and you have an unpleasant feeling. You'll soon be out of a job. $50,000 is a lot of money. And Alice herself is something to ponder over. She's really beautiful, isn't she, Johnny? You can't forget her lovely features, her low musical voice. The things she said keep repeating themselves. $50,000 just for you. It's easy to remember, Johnny. Melrose, five, four, three, two, one. All you have to do is count five. Backwards. A few afternoons later, you enter a drugstore, cross to the phone booth, lift the receiver, deposit a coin, and reach for the dial. You can get me at Melrose, five... Four, three, two, one. That's easy to remember, Johnny. All you have to do is count five. Backwards. With the prologue of Perfect Alibi, the Signal Oil Company brings you another strange story. By the Whistler. Have you been putting off buying new tires? You're going to be glad you waited. Because now you can save real money at Signal service stations. But hold on. Don't get the idea that Signal dealers are offering cut-price merchandise. Signal dealers feature nationally advertised first-line Lee tires built to top-quality standards. In fact, for 47 years, Lee has built only one quality, the finest first-line tires. And today's Lees wear much, much longer because Lee toughens cold rubber with patented high-abrasive Phil Black O. That's why Lee can back every tire with a double guarantee. Well, since such quality obviously can't be sold at cut prices, how can signal dealers save you money? By giving you today's biggest allowance for your old tires. That's right. That sign outside signal stations means just what it says. Biggest allowance for your old tires on top-quality Lee tires. I can't tell you exactly how much your old tires are worth, but they're worth plenty. And you can easily find out by driving into any signal station. So before you buy any tire, see a signal dealer. You'll be glad you did.
Well, Johnny, a few days ago when you left the Golden Sparrow after your uh, pickup tete-a-tete with Alice Collins, niece of the multi-millionaire lumberman Charles Collins, you didn't expect to see her again, did you? You're a licensed private detective, and she sounds like trouble. But with things piling up on you as they have, you decide you were a little hasty. An hour after phoning her, you drive to a modest little apartment building on Fountain Avenue near Coenga. Curious but still cautious, you knock lightly on the door. Hello, Springfield. Hello, Johnny. Come in. You still like music, don't you? Mm-hmm. I've got a good memory, too. Well, you have at that. <laughs> Here, let me take your hat. Then we'll go in the sunroom. Okay. Sit here, Johnny, and help yourself. Cigarette, scotch, and ice water. Oh, this is cozy. Real cozy. <laughs> My uncle gives me a very nice allowance. I spend every weekend with him out at his home near the ocean. That's quite a home from what I hear. Swimming pool, badminton court. Mm-hmm. But I'm young and like to go places. Uncle Charles didn't want me to drive out there alone late at night all the time, and so he suggested I take an apartment in town. You see, I'm his only blood relative. You ought to have quite a future. Mm-hmm. If I'm not an old lady before... He... Before anything happens to him. I wouldn't dwell on it. Nobody lives forever. Uh, excuse me, Johnny. Sure. Oh, Frankie. Hello, beautiful. Here. Thanks. Oh, awesome. They're lovely. <laughs> so are you. How about a drink? In the sunroom. You can mix me one while I put these in the icebox. I've been talking with the man for Uncle Ch... Oh, Johnny... Hello, could... Snoop. Well, you two know each other? For years. Hiya, Frankie. What are you doing here? I'm here a lot. How gorgeous. Uh, yes. Uh, you see, Johnny... What I, I can't figure out is what a Snoop's doing here. Business. Strictly business, Frankie. You see, Uncle Charles has been sick, and... Well, he, he heard rumors, things that the mill weren't on the up and up, and asked me to make some inquiries. Why didn't you ask me about it, baby? I'd have gotten you the best in the business. You don't think Johnny's good? Eh, he's all right. <laughs> oh, forget it, Snoop. I'm sorry I acted like I was sore. But when you're nuts about a dame, bad, you know how it is. Sure, Frankie, that's okay. Cigarette? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll be back in a second. I want to put these on. All right, take your time. Oh, that's a nice cigarette. Class, too. F.B. Frankie Benson, monogrammed in Old English. Everything. You, uh, you really like it? Like I said, Frankie, class. Well, here, take a bunch. Oh, no, I didn't mean go that. Go ahead, go on. I order them by the gross. Well, thanks. Uh, this job for old man Collins you're talking to the doll about. Oh, I don't know anything about it yet. I just got here two minutes before you did. Now, how about a drink? Sounds fine. I think I'll skip it, baby. You gotta talk to Snoop here. I'll pick you up at dinner around seven, okay? <sighs> Sounds fine. Good. Uh, drop around later on, Snoop. Say around uh, five thirty. I might have an idea for you. Five thirty it is. So long, Frankie. Well, Johnny, your golden girl seems a little tarnished, doesn't she? Not that you're surprised, but you are disappointed. And a little nettled to realize that a girl with a background of Alice Collins would waste her time on a gambler, a glorified hoodlum like Frankie Benson, operator of the notorious Dilbo's Gambling Club. After Frankie's departure, you make no attempt to hide your annoyance. 
Nice friends you got. Honestly, Johnny, it's not what you think. What do I think? You think I'm Frankie Benson's girl? Well, aren't you? No. He thinks so. I know he does. The way things are, I've had to let him think so. I owe him money, Johnny, a lot of money. Oh, so the lady did gamble and lose. Yes, she did. And if Uncle Charles found out, he'd cut off my allowance like that. Maybe send me back to Springfield, even. So you want me to get your money back? Uh-uh, Springfield. This is where I came in. Frankie Benson plays too rough for me. Way too rough. Wrong again, Johnny. I don't want you to stick out your neck for me. What do you want me to do? Just yeah. Look, Springfield. That day I met you, you you mentioned a piece of business you could throw my way. Fifty thousand dollars worth. I said we'd talk about that after I knew you better. Now, how long is that going to take? Not very long. I hope. As you drive out to Dilbo's at the request of Frankie Benson, your imagination goes far beyond anything you've ever thought of. You decide to marry Alice Collins. She's beautiful, and someday she'll inherit the Collins lumber fortune, reported to amount to more than $2 million. But you're worried about her connection with Frankie Benson. Frankie usually gets what he wants in one way or another. And when he doesn't, well, accidents happen, don't they? But when you enter his office, he's more than friendly. Hello, Sherlock. Sit down. Thanks. Take a handful of cigarettes. You said you like them. Well, like I said, they're class. I haven't seen you around lately, Johnny. What's the matter? Don't you like to play here anymore? Oh, sure, Frankie, but, well, I owe you nearly a G right now, and oh, I figured maybe I'd better pay up before I... Oh, your credit's always good here, Johnny. As long as we're friends. Well, that's nice to know. Well, what do you want to see me about? Oh, nothing in particular. Just curious about that snoop job for old man Collins. Is it all set? Uh, I don't know. Alice, or Miss Collins, is going to talk to her uncle about it. I'll know in a couple of days. Hmm. How come she picked you? Oh, she didn't. She called the office. The boss sent me out to talk to her. I'm glad you told me that, Johnny. I've always liked you. If there's anything I hate, it's being jealous of a guy I like. Well, like I told you, Miss Collins was called as a client, and the boss sent me out there. It's strictly business, Frankie. Now, I'm glad, Johnny. And I hope you keep it that way. Both of you. Frankie Benson's cordial manner doesn't fool you for a minute, does it, Johnny? It only makes his thinly veiled threats more pointed. Frankie Benson is still a gangster of the old school. And you have no intention of giving up Alice Collins. But you decide you'd better be careful. And for the next few weeks, your meetings with Alice are at out-of-the-way places, usually some distance into the country. You're determined that nothing is going to prevent your marrying her and uh, enjoying the fortune which will be hers after the death of her uncle. The idea of her uncle's uh, quick departure doesn't seem to shock you at all anymore, does it, Johnny? She says nothing further about the business deal she mentioned. Finally, as you decide it's time for a showdown, she phones you late one evening and asks you to drop by her apartment. She seems tense and excited. Frankie, Benson dropped in this afternoon, Johnny. He wasn't very pleasant. Now, look, you're playing with dynamite leading that guy on. He always takes care of Welchers, and when he goes nuts over a dame, he really goes nuts. The last dame that tried to fool him had a very peculiar accident. She fell on a letter opener and cut herself bad. I know. He told me about it today, while I was opening the afternoon mail. 
He gave me an ultimatum, Johnny. Marry him or pay up in two weeks. But can't you figure some way to get the money from your uncle? 33000 Not while he's alive. Of course, he could go any time. He's a restless sleeper. He's got asthma, high blood pressure, and a weak heart. He might even get tangled up in the bedclothes some night and smother. You think that might happen? It could. And if it did, there'd be 50000 in it for me, right? Yes. 50000 just for you. Oh, it's too risky. I wouldn't be around long enough to spend There's it. There's no risk at all. I'll take you out to Uncle Charles a couple of times. By the time you make up your mind, you'll know every foot of the place. You'll have the key to the front door in your pocket. The servants will all be deaf, huh? On Thursday nights, they're out. Except Whitcomb, the butler. He's always there in case Uncle Charles needs him. Wait a minute. You'd expect me to... Whitcomb's no problem. No problem at all. He always reads in the library near the phone. You see, you'll open the front door at 11 o'clock. At two minutes before 11, I'll phone. When he answers, I'll hold him for ten minutes at least. That'll give you all the time you need. Uncle Charles' death will be the most natural thing in the world. Doctor says it could happen any time. Mm-hmm. You really got it figured out, haven't you? A long time ago. Yeah, well, I'm afraid you picked the wrong guy. Too many chances for a slip-up. Things could go wrong. The doc might get suspicious, find it was murder. What if he does? You won't be connected with it. You'll have a perfect alibi. What? You'll be with me at my place all evening. There's no reason to think that I'd wish my uncle any harm. We'll have a few drinks. You can leave your fingerprints over everywhere. Forget your cigarette case, your top coat. It'll stand up. What about it, Johnny? Fifty thousand's not enough. After the will's settled, I'll double it. No, that's not enough either. I'm not interested in the money anymore. I want you, Springfield. I want to marry you. Do you think I'd ever let you get away from me, darling? I like that. So did I. What about next Thursday, Johnny? Maybe. I gotta figure out the other half of the problem first. The other half? Frankie Benson. As long as he's around, what happens to your uncle won't mean a thing. And you do figure it out, don't you, John? Frankie Benson's monogram cigarette. Instead of making it look like an accident, you'll make it look like murder. A murder that will send Frankie Benson to the gas chamber. The following Thursday evening, you go to Alice's apartment to double-check the details. Now, look, Springfield, about Frankie Benson. He called up a couple of minutes ago, Johnny. Wanted to drop over for a while. I told him I had a headache. What'd he say? Oh, he's beginning to scare me, Johnny. He told me I'd better take a nap. Said I might get dizzy and fall down and hurt myself. Said he'd call back in a couple of hours and see how I felt. Good. That's all I needed. Let's see. It takes about 40 minutes to drive from Dilbo's to here. All right. When he calls back, tell him to come over about 11.15. But I thought you were... I'm taking care of Frankie tonight, too, with one of these. Frankie's monogram cigarette. Yeah. I worked it all out, Springfield. All I needed was a break, like Frankie's phone call. Tonight's job's going to be murder. A murder that'll send Frankie Benson to the gas chamber. Oh, no, Johnny, the other way's safer. Uh-uh. We won't get another chance like this in a million years. Now, when I leave, I'll drop one of these monogram cigarettes by the front door. The rest is automatic. Oh, no, Johnny, it won't work. The cigarette will point to Frankie, sure, but it won't stand up when he tells the police he was framed. 
They'll believe him. Frankie hasn't any reason to kill Uncle Charles. I've taken care of that, too. I called the DA this afternoon. Said I was your uncle and told him to send a man out tomorrow morning. The newspaper boys will be there, too. They're expecting a big story about Frankie Benson. Oh, you're out of your mind, Johnny. Uncle Charles never gambled in his life. He never even heard of Frankie Benson. The DA heard different. He thinks your uncle found out about your gambling losses to Frankie. He sent out a private eye to Dilbo's. The guy picked up a couple of pairs of dice. Loaded. Cute, huh? Yes, it is. But what about Frankie's coming here tonight? Now, that's the clincher, baby. When he gets here, your headache will be so bad, you'll have to send him away. When the cops pick him up, if he tells him he was here, he's lying. That's my alibi. I was here all of the evening. Oh, it'll work, Johnny. Oh, you're wonderful. Well, that's it, baby. With you to back me, it can't miss. Wish me luck, Springfield. All the luck in the world, darling. Hurry back. Well, I'm not coming back tonight, baby. Our alibi is all set. The evidence will back us up. I think it's better if I just hold up at home for a day or so, huh? I guess you're right. Now, look, don't forget to phone the butler just before 11. I won't. Come here, Johnny. That's for luck, darling. Whistler will return in just a moment with a strange ending to tonight's story. Since this is the season when so many of the most popular radio shows go off the air for the summer, I have tonight what I trust will be good news for you Whistler fans. The Signal Oil program, The Whistler, will continue to come to you throughout the summer without interruption. This makes the sixth consecutive year that Signal Oil Company has broadcast The Whistler for 52 weeks each year. What's more, if your vacation travel should take you into other Pacific Coast states, you can still enjoy your favorite mystery, because Signal Oil Company broadcasts The Whistler on 16 CBS stations throughout five Pacific Coast states. For the nearest Columbia station to wherever you happen to be, just consult the handy radio log in the new Signal roadmaps, which are yours for the asking at all Signal stations. So this summer, when you want the tops in radio entertainment, we hope you'll continue to tune in The Whistler. And when you want the tops in gasoline quality, we hope you'll turn in to a signal service station and fill up with signal, the famous go-farther gasoline. Taking care of Charles Collins was easy, wasn't it? Everything went exactly as you planned. And it came easy to you, didn't it, Johnny? You even slept soundly afterward. The following morning, lolling back in your one comfortable chair, you read the whole story in the paper. It's all over the front page. Lumber King murdered. Police solved case in record time. Killer apprehended. Everything worked out exactly as you planned, didn't it, Johnny? And in a few months, you'll marry Alice Collins and the Collins fortune. As the doorbell rings, you decide it must be another bill collector. That amuses you, doesn't it? You stroll leisurely to the door and turn the knob. Well, it's you, Lieutenant. Hello, Jennings. Come on in, boy. No, I haven't got time, Johnny. Besides, we can talk better downtown. Get your hat. Is that official? Very. Murder, Johnny. Collins' killing last night. Oh, yeah. I was just reading about that when you came in. 
You've been seeing a lot of his niece lately, haven't you, Johnny? Yeah, sure. She's a client of mine. I was with her last night, at her apartment, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. from nine until, well, nearly one this morning. Is that an official statement? Of course it is. Make a note of it, Jenny. Well, as a matter of fact, we know all about that, Johnny. You left your fingerprints all over the place. You must have been pretty high. You even forgot your overcoat and cigarette case. Uh, well, I'll admit we had a few drinks. But what's the idea, Lieutenant? The morning paper says you've already nabbed the guy that killed Collins. Yes, we have. Frankie Benson. He was a little noisy making his exit. He got panicky and dropped his card as he opened the front door. A half-smoked cigarette. Monogrammed. His own special brand. Benson admitted it? No. But his alibi was so phony, he's as good as convicted right now. Yeah, but what motive would Benson have? <laughs> Plenty. Old man Collins had him cold. Crooked game. Loaded dice. He was going to give the D.A. the whole story this morning. Well, if you've got everything so sewed up, why do you want to talk to me about the Charles Collins murder? We're taking you in for the murder of his niece, Alice Collins, Johnny. She got hers about 11 last night in her apartment. Stabbed with a letter opener, as if you didn't know. Pretty clumsy accident, Johnny. Featured in tonight's story were Jack Webb, Doris Singleton, and Eddie Marr. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Ed Bloodworth, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Remember at the same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The usual twist ending from The Whistler in a story called Perfect Alibi from the late spring of 1949 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, space travels become so commonplace nowadays, even civilians, just plain old, everyday billionaires like you and me, are taking trips beyond the Earth's atmosphere. We barely remember that for most of human history, and as lately as the 1950s, our perspective on outer space was quite different we hadn't ever been there. Today, we have. We are there right now, and we've all seen pictures of our planet from out there. Seventy years ago, nobody had seen that view. I mention this because that earlier limited view is very much the basis for an episode of The Hall of Fantasy that we're about to hear. It stars Jim Amici, whose voice is quite similar to that of his more famous brother, Don. Jim Amici did make his own mark, though, especially in radio, where he starred in one of the most successful kids' series, Jack Armstrong, The All-American Boy. 
Mr. Amici's work on that show was far back in his past, though, when this story, The Man from the Second Earth, aired on August 8, 1953, over the Mutual Network as part of the series The Hall of Fantasy. Stand by. How could he learn to speak our language? I don't know, Rose. 
He said he was going to try, but that was about a week ago. I guess he's Wait fine. a minute. This may be it. Doc coming, Can you answer him? We're on the same wavelength, I think so. I am receiving you, Torquane. And I, you. We have established contact with each other for millions of light years apart. What is the name of your planet? We call our planet Earth. What do you call yours? We also call our planet Earth. And are you the satellite of a dying sun as are we? That's incredible. No. Our sun will burn in the universe for ages to come. You are lucky. Then how far progressed is your world? Our instruments recorded a radioactive blast some years ago. Have you managed atomic power? Can you travel in space? We have really just begun to experiment with atomic power. But I'm afraid that for us, space travel is many years away. What about your people? The way you talk, you must have learned the secret of atomic power some time ago. But can you travel in space? Yes. We have to learn the principles of space travel in order that we might save ourselves. For the time has come when an exploratory expedition must be sent out to discover a new world for us to inhabit. This is the last time I will contact you from here. This is Tarkin signing up. He's gone. He stopped sending. Carl, I... I don't mean to doubt you, but are you sure this Torquane is real? What do you mean? Isn't it possible that someone's been playing a trick on you? Uh, a practical joke? No, it's not, Bruce. I picked up the signal Torquane was sending several months before I was able to break it down and translate it. The radio waves actually came from somewhere in the Milky Way. Torquane said he'd been trying to establish contact with intelligent beings for almost 15 years. It was just recently that he directed the beam towards the Earth. Carl, he said something about an exploratory expedition. And that this was the last time he was going to contact you from there. What did he mean by that? Probably that he was going on the expedition. Nothing else? What else could he mean? I see what you're driving at, Sharon. Torquane said he inhabited a planet in a dying solar system. It seemed to me that he was quite anxious to learn of what progress we've made in the atomic field and space travel. Why would he want to know if we've mastered it? Probably because he was curious. I should think he'd be more curious as to what kind of life exists here. Any number of things before he'd even think of space travel. That's right. And he also said that their instruments had recorded a radioactive blast some years ago. Seems to me they've been studying the Earth for a long time. And why should they study our planet so closely unless the exploratory expedition intends to come here to get a first-hand view of the Earth? You mean you think he intends coming to the Earth? Yes, well, then, think of what that'll mean to us, Bruce. Obviously, there's centuries ahead of us in technological progress. Think what they can teach us. But what if they don't want to teach us, Carl? What if they want to conquer us, to destroy us? Well, why should they want to do that? Because their son is dying. They must find a new planet to inhabit or die with it. I think Bruce is right. I don't think so. I think he's like most of us, afraid of anything new. If Torquane does come here, I'm sure it'll be in peace. Take a look at it, and it was the craziest looking airplane I ever saw. Then a big guy got out. He looked like a man, but he 
Now to the Hall of Fantasy and the tale of The Man from the Second Earth. Almost five weeks later that the report appeared in the papers concerning the mysterious disappearance of the farmer who had called the police. The story leaked out and the newspapers carried the headlines, Who Was It? blazoned across their lead pages. At the time, I didn't connect the farmer's disappearance with what had gone before, but I've learned soon that there was a definite connection. Hello? May I speak to Bruce Marshall? This is Bruce, Sharon. Oh, Bruce. Bruce, I wish you'd come over tonight. I'm afraid something's going to happen. Is anything wrong? Not yet. But last night, Carl received a call from someone. I don't know who it was, and he wouldn't tell me anything about it. Well, that's nothing to get worried about. I'm not so sure about that, Bruce. Did you read the report in the papers about the farmer? Yes. Do you think they have arrived? I don't know. That's why I want you to come over tonight, Bruce. I want you to see Carl and talk to him. Before it's too late. Carl, who called last night? Was it Torquane? Yes. Then he did come here two days ago. And the farmer we read about in the papers. Torquane said the farmer tried to kill him. He was only protecting himself. By following him into the house and killing him? The farmer's not dead. He's being held captive on the ship. Where is it? I don't know. He wouldn't tell me. The talking said he came in peace. He doesn't want his presence known because he's afraid it might panic our people. That's why he's had to ensure secrecy. The papers played in a big. The people will forget about it in time. Who's that? It must be Torchin. Let him in. Oh, Bruce. I'm afraid. Maybe there's nothing to be afraid of, Sharon. If Carl is right, then Torchin did come here in peace. I thought you would be alone. So did I. But they already know about you. They were with me when we spoke together. They will not mention me? I know they won't. One is my wife, the other a good friend and colleague. Then let us proceed. You look so much like us. Why should I not look like you? Our worlds are very much alike. We too are warm-blooded creatures who developed as you did here on your earth. Our world is much like yours. Only it is older and dying as our son is dying. Why have you come here, Torquing? To see my friend, Rasmussen. I come in peace. So I understand. Then there is nothing to be afraid of, is there? That's right. I must ask a favor of you, Rasmussen. Anything you want. I request that we be allowed to store some equipment here in your house. That I be allowed to stay here with you. Of course. You can stay as long as you like. We can exchange many ideas, you and I, which may benefit both of us. I'm sure we can. When would you like to move in your equipment? Tonight, if possible. Can you do it tonight? I was sure you would agree to my plan. My equipment is waiting outside. We'll help you if you like. No. It is very delicate. My own people will handle it for me. Where may we place it? In the basement. Many thanks. One other thing. Yes. This does not concern you, Rasmussen, but rather your friend. As long as we remain here, I would suggest that you stay also. Why? You are a colleague of Rasmussen's. I should be interested in talking to you, exchanging ideas which may be mutually beneficial. I don't Bruce, think... please stay. All right. I'll leave now and come back tomorrow with my things. Let me know where your possessions are, and one of my people will get them for you. 
I should hate to have you leave us tonight. Now I will tell my people to bring in our equipment. After we are settled, I shall see you again. Almost 11.30. Oh, Carl is still down there with them. I wish he'd come back upstairs. He hasn't been gone long. He'll be back up in a minute. Bruce, did you notice Torquay's face? Waxy and shining. It, it didn't seem real. It, it looked like a mannequin one might see in a store. And, Bruce, maybe I imagined it, but I thought it changed while he was in here, that it took on new lines, new features while he was talking to us. Yes. I thought my eyes were going back on me, but his face did seem to change. I'd almost swear that it did. Someone's coming. Oh. Oh, it's you, Carl. Yes, it's I. Anything wrong, Carl? I don't know, Rose. Remember when Torquay first walked in here? He seemed so tall and thin. Downstairs, his shape seemed to be changing. It lost form, seemed to become fluid, and then would harden back into shape when he looked at me. Then we were right. Carl, I think Torquay assumed the form of a man when he came here tonight. I don't think his body is solid. I think his true form is a semi-liquid state which he can harden and assume any figure he likes. I think he's made up of a mass of living matter. Ah! What's that? I'm a scream, sir. Farmer, he was down there. We'd better see what happened. Right, you stay here, Sharon. Did you talk to him when you were down there? The farmer? Yes. Was he all right? Yes, but he seemed a little dazed. Torquay? All the lights are down there. The only light is streaming through this doorway. Don't... Look. Yes, I see him. Shut up. Come down here. We heard a scream. I'll take a look at the farmer. You keep Torquane talking. Right. Why is it so dark down here? We are resting. Why did he scream? He was frightened. Why don't you let him come upstairs with us? He will remain with us. There's nothing wrong with him, is there? Nothing. Let's go. I've seen enough. We'll go back upstairs then. Do not come down here again unless he calls you. Who's with you, all right? All right, nothing. He was stabbed. What? That's right. There was some kind of wet, oozing substance all over him that seemed to be alive. I heard something down there, Bruce. Like the bubbling of water. Yet not like it. No, it was too thick to be water. Carl, I think there's something down there that could very well destroy us all. This thing you spoke to from the other planet Earth isn't a man at all, but an oozing, undulating, living mass of matter bent on our destruction. You are listening to The Man from the Second Earth on this week's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. We'll return to our story in just a moment. to our story, an original tale of fantasy featuring Jim Amici, entitled The Man from the Second Earth. We stood there in the hallway beside the door which led to the cellar and the things that were downstairs. Carl and I had heard a scream, and when we had gone down there to investigate, we found the farmer lying dead on the stairs. This thing you spoke to from the other planet Earth isn't a man at all, but an oozing, undulating, living mass of matter bent on our destruction. When we saw him, he looked like a man. I know. 
Evidently, they can solidify themselves when they need to, can assume any shape they desire, but they can't hold it for long intervals of time because the features change, melt into each other. Poor King seemed in a hurry to get downstairs. Evidently, they can't remain in the solid state too long. Who screamed? We better tell her. What happened down there? The man they held captive is dead. Then they're not friendly. No, they're not. What are we going to do? Well, I'm going to call the police. What's the matter? The line's dead. Dead? But how could the... Look. Where? At the window. Looks like a heavy layer of oil is covering the glass. You're right. Look! It's moving. I'm going to see if I can open the window. I, I, I can't seem to move it. Stuck tight. What about the door? Don't even bother. We won't be able to open them. Torchain took care of that, too. But we have to do something. You should never have established contact with him. He'd have established contact with someone else, then. Evidently, the conditions here on our planet are equivalent to the conditions that prevail on theirs. But there must be other planets in the universe where the same conditions exist. In all the vast reaches of space... Surely there must be others that approximate the Earth. That's right. They must have come here for a definite reason. But of all the planets in the universe, why would they choose ours? I can explain that to you. (gasps) Right in back of us. How did you get up here? I came up quietly. I did not want to alarm you. What about the farmer? What about him? Is he still all right? Yes. You're lying. He was dead when we left him. You know then? Yes. What did you do to him? That is one of the answers as to why we came to your Earth. By coincidence, we named our planet Earth also. But life on your planet followed a different evolutionary pattern than did life on ours. Your life developed from the one-celled creature spawned in the depths of the sea. You became the animal you call man, with its disadvantages of never being able to change your form. We still are the protoplasmic beings that once you were. Only we developed along that evolutionary line, and you did not... That still doesn't explain why I am coming to that. You live on energy converted from plant and animal life. So do we. So why did you come here? Because the slow death of our sun has destroyed all but a small portion of the plant and animal life on our world. There is not enough heat, and we can no longer sustain ourselves. On your planet, there is an abundance of both. On your planet, we shall establish a new world. What are you doing? Lighting a cigarette. That is what you call fire? Let me see it. The matches? Why? I want to see them. Here. I thank you. On our world, we never had a use for these. It is like a tiny sun. How brightly it glows and how... It is too warm. You shouldn't have held it so long, Torchane. I do not like this thing you call fire. Look. God. His hand. It's melting. You have not much longer to live. Enjoy your last minute. What does he mean? He means they intend to kill us soon. We've got to get away from here. How? What can we do? There must be some way to destroy them. How can you destroy a living mass of matter? Let's try to figure it out logically. They left their own planet because their son was dying and unable to support adequate life. They feared the cold, so they'd freeze into a solid and be unable to move. But it's the middle of summer, and we don't have any refrigeration equipment downstairs. I know, but what's the opposite of freezing? Heat, boiling, burning. That's right. Did you notice what happened to his hand when he was holding that match? Yes, it began to melt. That's right. And he seemed afraid of it. I think there are only two ways to destroy these beings. Either to freeze them... Or to burn them. We can't freeze them. But we can burn them. How? This house will burn. But we can't get out. We'll burn with it. Maybe not. 
The window wouldn't move, but it might break. We can get out that way. Well, what if it won't break? That's the chance we'll have to take. Let's start ripping the curtains and drapes down, Bruce. They'll burn the easiest. Right. All right, let's go. I'll go open the gas burners in the kitchen. Good girl. That'll help it along. I'll be right back. Pile them up over here alongside the wall. All right. I just hope the rest of the house catches. So do I. If it catches and the gas gets dense enough, it should explode. There's some more over here. Sharon! Hurry! Everything open in there. The oven, the burners, everything. I can smell it from here. Well, that's the last of the curtains. Oh, look! It's seeping under the doorway. They must have smelled the gas. Oh, light the fire. Hurry. It's seeping through faster. It's falling off on all sides of the door. It'll break through the door in a minute. It won't hold much longer. Fire's catching hold. We've got to get out of here. Let's go. Use that chair in the window. I will. Hurry. Let's hope it breaks. Here we go. Get worse. Climb through in a hurry. All right, here. Help. There. Now, run as fast as you can. The fire seems to be dying down. They're trying to smother it. If only that... I'm sorry about your house, Mr. Rasmussen. Doesn't look like we can save it. That's all right. What did you have down in your basement anyway? Some chemicals? Yeah. I've never seen anything burn like that before. Yeah, I'd better get back. Well. I didn't think we would. I'll never forget it as long as I live. But it's over. Yes, for a while. But who can tell what will happen in the future? What other forms of life are present in those stars you see? What else will come from out of the sky? Characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. The Man from the Second Earth, a story from the Hall of Fantasy in the summer of 1953. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to go out with one more tune by Richard Adler, whose centennial we're celebrating this week, and his partner, Jerry Ross. This one is from one of their hit shows, The Pajama Game, and it was a huge hit on the radio for the great Rosemary Clooney. She recorded it for Columbia Records on May 22, 1954, and it hit the charts two months later. It stayed on the charts for more than half a year, including six weeks at number one. Just as in the stage show, The Magic of Technology turned the song into a duet for a solo singer, the beautiful ballad, Hey There. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Lately when I'm in my room All by myself In the solitary gloom I call 
to myself Hey there You with the stars in your eyes Love never made a fool of you You used to be Hey there, you on that high-flying cloud Though he won't throw a crumb to you You think someday he'll come to you Better forget him Him with his nose in the air He has you dancing on a string Break it and he won't care Won't you take this advice I hand you like a mother Or are you not seeing things too clear Are you too much in love to hear? Is it all going in one ear and out the other? Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. Are you talking to me? Love never made a fool of you. Not until now. You used to be too wise. Yes, I was once. Will you take this advice? I hand you like a mother. Or am I not seeing things too clear? Are you just too far gone to hear? Is it all going in one ear?